Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome back to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. It's boxing history time. We're doing some reliving, revisiting, rescoring, and I mean, just re-ass kicking, to be honest. <laughs> it's nothing too fancy about this James Buster Douglas versus Iron Mike Tyson revisited recap type of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's some of, some of these types of fights we just got to go through. We got to dispel the rumors. We got to just kind of go through and point by point, round by round, uh, just forget what you learned, forget what you thought you know type of thing. Bryn, Jonathan Butler, my pal, author, you know, of course, filmmaker, and just trainer to the stars over there in New York. Bryn, how you doing, bud? I'm good. This was the most interesting fight I've we've ever gone back to for me, so I, I'm really excited to get into it. I, it totally is not how I remembered it as an 11-year-old watching it in real time. Or a 10-year-old, I guess. Jesus. Yeah, coming up in a handful of years, it's going to be fucking 40 years ago. Yowza. Starting to get up there, bro. But, you know, easily one of the most memorable. Like, if you you were alive for it, and if you were just old enough to remember it, it's easily one of the most memorable sporting events. If you didn't watch it live, you definitely remember hearing about it, like, the next day or the next morning. Uh, it happened at a somewhat odd time in Tokyo, so they could broadcast it here and whatnot. So, I mean, it, it's one of those formative type of memories in a lot of our childhoods because they've we know the ESPN classic reel of him, Mike Tyson knocking dudes stiff, usually stiffs, so usually some bums. And that's what a lot of people remember. They remember him bowling over all sorts of contenders and bums alike, but then it came to a screeching halt against Buster Douglas. So, you know, that's that's significant because Mike Tyson became a cultural icon before and after that happened. He remained a cultural icon. So it's it's definitely a big it's a big event. Yeah, I think I think you could argue in sports, and I mean this respectfully, it was Pearl Harbor. It was sort of 9-11 in terms of how the news circulated of something unimaginable. Again, in sports, I don't mean any disrespect to to those tragedies that a lot of lives were lost but in sports this was as dramatic an upset as there had ever been in a century you could argue in the 20th century it's sort of the most dramatic news that nobody saw coming because most bet makers you hear 42 to 1 42 to 1 and i worked a bit with jeremy Shap on the 42 to 1 documentary 30 for 30 um only a couple of places i think were even offering 42 to 1 yeah i mean that was definitely an outlier but still yeah. But the vast majority of bettors wouldn't take the fight because the odds were astronomically worse than 42 to 1. But watching this fight, I remembered it as a kid being way more competitive. And then, of course, we have the drama with the long counts. Actually, objectively, they were both equally 14 seconds of them being down to when they're getting up. Uh, which Larry Merchant, if you guys ever want to do the rabbit hole and look into the post-fight interviews that happened at the time in 1990, they address a lot of this stuff that we're going to delve into. But what I think this fight comes down to is point one, I would make an argument that Tyson is not winning even 10 seconds of this fight that goes on for 10 and a half rounds. I don't think he has control for 10 seconds. And so it's an utter domination. And I don't even know, is it so much that Buster Douglas, I think Larry Merchant says, this is his dream of a fighter, is who he became in this one night, the only night that he was that in his entire career, 
Or is it that Tyson was so bad in this fight that he lost a ton of weight? He was knocked down in sparring. He was so arrogant. He had all these expectations and sense of entitlement of how talented and important he was. You talk about Tyson as a cultural icon. I think you could legitimately argue he was the most famous face on the planet at this time, or certainly in contention for that kind of global Mount Olympus of celebrity. I mean, he was almost more myth than celebrity. He sort of transcended celebrity in a way, Trans certainly transcended sports, um, which very few athletes had done. Like to put it in perspective, way bigger than Michael Jordan. Even at the peak of Michael Jordan's fame as an athlete, it's not remotely comparable to what Tyson, the, the role that Tyson occupied. I mean, think about Buster Douglas winning this fight puts him in a position to win more money than any athlete had at any sport ever in human history, fighting Evander Holyfield. That's all because of what it meant to beat Mike Tyson at this, at this time in this fight. So my big takeaway, last point on this, is that what this fight really is as you rewatch it is an exercise in confirmation bias. Is everybody going into it thinks this could ne this is impossible. And if you're actually watching what's in front of your eyes, from the first moment it starts, it's inevitable. And you're in conflict with those two, this dichotomy of inevitable and impossible. And even rewatching it, I'm struggling with it. Because it's like, wait a minute, Tyson is just going to, he's going to catch him. At some point, he's going to become Mike Tyson again. And he never becomes Mike Tyson again. Even when he puts down Douglas in, in the eighth round, it's, it's still luck. That's the luck of the fight. The luck is not Buster Douglas dominating the entire fight. But I also would argue this is not who Mike Tyson was before. This is not a reflection of exposing the athlete he was before. This is just a guy who's totally out of shape, probably on an off day with a lot of personal baggage that he's bringing to this one night and the culmination of him neglecting to do what's necessary to maintain the kind of dominance he had. It's not that he was never that good and he was always overrated and all that stuff. Th that's bullshit too. So there's, it's a really complicated, uh, the baggage that goes into this night and what you're watching and then how the bias of so many people were like, ha we got him. And now we can lay in this storyline. I think there's a lot of fake news on that side too. So very interesting fight. Um, not to get too philosophical, but I think that generally speaking, we live in a pretty binary, uh, like where the preference is if you have kind of two, like a binary choice or whatever, um, society, you know, et cetera, where especially on social media, if you say one thing, uh, well, then that means what this or this. So similarly, if you apply it to kind of Mike Tyson losing, Buster Douglas defeating Mike Tyson, well, then either Mike Tyson was always shit, you know, like he was overrated, no, he was never worth shit, or, you know, there's some other, you know, there's always kind of like, you know, it's an either or situation. And a lot of people seem to look at it that way. Like either Buster Douglas got lucky and, you know, hit the fucking jackpot. Mike Tyson just was never worth shit. And that's how a lot of people seem to look at these situations, especially in boxing when a fighter's undefeated and then now they they lose that O. See, they were never any fucking good. They were never any good. And this is a, it's a very bad way. It's a poor metric to fucking use in boxing. And unfortunately, 
I mean, as, as much as I will defend certain things about Floyd Mayweather, that mentality has really been amplified in the last handful of years where a fighter has to keep their O. A fighter has to be undefeated if they're going to be great. And Floyd Mayweather's now kind of used that as a cudgel as far as comparing himself to other all-time greats and saying, well, they have losses. I don't. And so that being said, again, circling back to this Mike Tyson situation, it's not as if Floyd Mayweather created this because we see the exact same type of mentality with Mike Tyson. We see it all over when there's, you know, very, very, very few people in the media, newspaper, writers, et cetera, actually picking James Douglas. Very few. A handful did. But you also kind of have to consider that a lot of these people were kind of like, you know, broken clock telling fucking the right time, you know, twice a day. They just fucking hated them. They had nothing that had nothing to do with they uh, they knew that this was a bad situation or anything like that. They just wanted to see Mike Tyson lose, thought he was a thug. He was a bad guy. Some of that might be fucking true. But nonetheless, they weren't picking it because they were going with logic or they were breaking down fucking techniques. They just didn't like them. So that being said, you know, there are very few people picking James Douglas. And then as soon as he fucking wins, people go, see, I told you. Tyson was never with shit. He never fought anybody, never challenged himself. And then on top of that, this, 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 and this. So a lot of the narrative gets really, really distorted. And then you just go back and you have to read the shit people wrote pre-fight, dude. Nobody was saying that. No, and and you, you have to, I mean, Errol Morris has this book where it's seeing, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. And if you go back to who Tyson was, I mean, up until Spinks, development 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 he's just getting better and better and better he's showing you more things um in this fight there's nothing about this version of tyson that is what he was before this like like go to the frank bruno fight i rewatched the frank bruno fight um i think he has one against tillis too before this after Spinx, right those are the two fights after both of those fights where kevin rooney is not in the corner i'm not saying kevin rooney is the great genius in boxing but I think Tyson still had somebody who would tell him, you need to stay disciplined. What got you here, we need to maintain this. It's not to say that Tyson didn't have problems with tall fighters who could jab. He did. He did. It was like, that's not a strength of his. But the Tyson who is a pressure counterpuncher, who even as he's coming forward, is creating angles, is swapping the stance, is using the D'Amato shift as what's in front of him is presenting him with opportunities. That guy is not in this fight for two seconds. That guy never shows up. This guy's available to be hit. It's funny they talk about his head movement. He does not take a step to create a new angle this entire fight. And that's all he would do as a young fighter. Watch the Marvis Frazier fight. Watch the Sphinx fight. Watch how he beat Trevor Burbick. Watch the angles he creates in his highlight reel in order to create those knockouts. That guy is not this guy who is a puncher, who's lazy, who's not in shape. When when Douglas takes a step back, you never see Tyson trying to find an angle. His head movement, which is another thing, watch him in the earlier part of his career where the head movement is happening as he's advancing. He is taking steps either from in an orthodox position to create an angle and pivot, or he's shifting the southpaw and again pivoting to create new angles. None of that happens here for two seconds. So anybody who's saying this Tyson who gets defeated by Buster Douglas shows you how overrated he was before, it's complete bullshit. It's not, it's not demonstrated in any of the evidence of who he was before. And then we need to look at Buster Douglas, who consistently 
was somebody who performed under his potential throughout his career, has many tools, but was willing to give up a lot of fights. It's fascinating going into this fight. A huge narrative marker in this fight is that his mom dies just before, I think 13 days before or, or somewhere around there within a month. Merchant, I think Jim Lampley references it. It's going to make it even easier for him to get beaten. It does exactly the opposite. It, it inspires him. Um, the fact that he's getting no press coverage, he's getting no respect, he's dismissed, he's a punchline. All of this motivates him, especially galvanized by the death of his mother. He was incredibly close to his mother. So uh, it, it's just, I think this fight is so interesting in a way that I never really considered before about perception versus reality and trusting reality when it's showing you what's going on as you cling to what you think it's supposed to be for both of these guys. They're just totally misread. And, and speaking of public perception and predictions and stuff like that, on the basis of this fight, Bert Sugar calling the Buster Douglas Evander Holy fight, Holyfield fight, picks Holy, sorry, picks Douglas. A lot of people looked at Douglas and went, oh, he's finally where he was meant to be. And Evander Holyfield's this little guy who he can't handle a heavyweight's punch. He doesn't have a heavyweight's punch and stuff like that. Again, people, critics are pretty terrible at this because it's really hard to know. Fucking counterintuitive. You know what I'm saying? Like they're calling Tyson shit, but then in the next breath, they're going like, but Douglas on the other hand. Douglas yeah. and it's like but you just called the guy he who what you just said the guy he beat who he's hanging his hat on shit I don't understand but that's how it went then that's how it often still goes it doesn't make any sense you know there's no logic being applied there no and and I'll tell you just just a little bit uh I interviewed Buster Douglas I guess in uh 2015 for a profile I did on Tyson he had this one anecdote I thought I would just share because because I don't know if you've ever heard it I had never heard it before I'd never seen it printed anywhere New Year's Eve, 1989. He's 6,500 miles away from the Tokyo Dome. And he's 29 years old. He attends this New Year's Eve party in Columbus, Ohio. There's a crowd of people at this party. Buster doesn't know anybody, but he notices this beautiful woman across the room that's staring at him. So Douglas approaches her. And as he nears her, she starts shaking her head. And Douglas says, hi, but he he's like weirded out because he doesn't know why She's shaking her head at him, and she just said, you must be really desperate. And she starts laughing at him as she's glaring. And he says, why? And she said, you must be awfully desperate for some money to fight someone like Mike Tyson. And it was something that just set him up where he was telling me, imagine that woman 42 days later after I put Tyson on his ass. Imagine the story that she has to tell for the rest of her life, meeting me at that party on New Year's Eve. So I feel like that's where Douglas was coming from, is throughout the fight, he was, my mom's dead. Nothing nothing could ever happen to me that's going to impact me where I care remotely as much as losing, losing this woman he was so close to. Um, and you see the way he fights. He's so relaxed. That, I mean, he, he just fought such a brilliant fight, but a huge part of it he didn't buy into what all of us did about Tyson on that night. And, and you see it, you see it throughout the entire fight. Even when he gets knocked down, ah, fuck pounds, the pounds, pounds, the canvas. He's frustrated that he just got a little bit careless. And I wonder, I, I wonder, did Tyson see him hit the canvas and go, Oh, fuck, he's getting up. 
I'm in trouble. That definitely would have affected him mentally, I would imagine, psych- psychology, psychologically or whatever. But, um, you know, it's funny because, uh, and I'm not like the first person to bring this up. I'm not like uncovering anything new or anything like that. But I mean, I don't discount the effect that, you know, Buster Douglas' mom dying had on his performance and his training and his motivation, his inspiration, because it's there. It's, you know, it'd be foolish for me to say it didn't doesn't count or something, but... Um, also, I think that a big part of this narrative, you know, Mark Kriegel's wet fucking dream here is that fucking Buster Douglas dad, uh, you know, Bill Douglas was a former fighter in the 1970s and a very, very good fighter, but a fighter who, um, you know, there have been a lot of fighters over the years, even fighters who have been extremely successful, who carried a chip on their shoulder. Like they felt like they got fucked over in their career for one reason or another. Many of them did. And I'm talking about, you know, beyond the usual fucking over from promoters and managers and whatnot. Like that's, you know, just kind of a given. It's like a trope at this point, a stereotype. It's just a given, but like, uh, he felt like he got a raw deal, uh, throughout his career. And, the common kind of uh, the conventional thought, especially coming from if you listen to Buster Douglas, is that his dad kind of carried a grudge, um, you know, almost a typical situation where a father was living vicariously through a son and forcing the son to do something they didn't really want to do and didn't do organically. They were doing it because they were pointed in that direction. And so Buster Douglas, he actually started in the... uh Actually, I think it was Bill Douglas was a fighter even before the mid-70s. It was the mid-70s that Buster Douglas started fighting as an amateur. Um, and so he had actually been fighting for a good 15 years, maybe a little bit more by the time the Tyson fight rolled around. That's also kind of a misconception is that, like, you know, he was a guy who came to the game late and stuff. He actually came to the game very early. It's just that he left. He got recruited to play basketball, played basketball for a number of years, stopped boxing, got back into boxing. But then also his dad started up a promotional stable. He joined his dad's promotional stable. It was actually a very funky situation, dude. Very early on in his career, uh, Buster Douglas had a loss that you can now see on BoxRec. But back in the day, I've brought this up before, they didn't have BoxRec. They'd rely at best, especially in the 80s, uh, on fight facts. I don't even know when fight facts came out. I might not have been out at this point. So people were making up records, fudging records. They promoted him as undefeated well after his loss for like a number of years when he clearly was not undefeated and he had already lost. But like it was it was a whole orchestrated thing. Buster Douglas was not a dude who came out of nowhere. He was in Columbus, a pretty big deal, a good uh, amateur prospect, et cetera. And then, of course, his size. A lot of people knew this is a potential very good heavyweight. And that's exactly kind of what they had on their hands. The problem was, as you as you brought up, there were a number of situations where he was put in kind of a step up uh, situ- situation or step up in terms of quality of opponent. And consistently, even in the amateurs, too, this was a theme in his career. He He wasn't consistent. He could not keep winning. He would be put into these situations where he'd have to rise to the occasion. And he never did. And in fact, he would almost always like quit. And then he'd like quit boxing. Like he'd be like, ah, I don't want, I'm not want boxing anymore. I don't even want to fight anymore. And he would temporarily quit. His dad would go talk shit to the newspapers and be like, yeah, my son, he's lazy. and doesn't know what he's doing. And so these kinds of things affected Buster Douglas a lot too. And I think that his mom, and I mean, this is my own dime store psychology here. His mom was probably a shield for that. A lot of it. 
his mom was probably shielding him from having to fulfill what he felt were those obligations from his dad that were like not really coming from him. And so when his mom died, I mean, obviously a few weeks is not enough time to really like turn his whole mind around or whatever. But when his mom died, it I think that he probably did, like you said, feel some sort of uh, some sort of degree of like, fuck it. Like, you know, what, what do we what do we lose? What do we have to lose? There's nothing to lose. Like, I want I'm not going to fear embarrassment. I don't really care about like being humiliated in front of my hometown, like because that was seemed to be a theme too. like he would like you know, be slagged by hometown papers who knew he was kind of a quitter. And so in any case, uh, that's really seemed to all the whole package. It wasn't just his mom, wasn't just his dad. This entire thing, you know, really came to a head and created, you know, the planets aligned. It created a perfect situation for Buster Douglas to win this fight along with Mike Tyson's noted troubles you know they they during the fight even show the clip of him getting dropped and sparring there was other uh stories of him getting dropped and hurt very badly in sparring apart from james page you know i think it was oliver mccall was the one they said hurt him real bad in sparring etc so there was a whole big saga um and going into this fight you know there's there's still a lot of a lot of kind of mythology yeah and, and buster had always had massive issues with his weight he was rarely in shape for fights. He never had that kind of chiseled physique, particularly like, like he's a lot bigger guy. His dad fought as a middleweight, I think, for most of his career. It's interesting, the overlap between the two of them. Buster's professional career began about nine months after his dad's career ended. Like they're almost fighting at the same time. Um, Buster had had a few losses by the time he got to Tyson. I think three, maybe four Maybe four, I guess he lost his fifth fight to David Bay. So right away, he kind of looked like a bust. Discipline was always an issue. There were, um, you know, he wasn't fighting that frequently. And then after losing to Tony Tucker, a fight he was winning and, and looked good for a lot of moments, he lost in a way that everybody blamed Buster's not having the tenacity, being a quitter, all the things you're describing. He's like, you know what, I'm going to come back. I'm going to put it together. I'm going to give this one more sort of concerted try. And he strings together, I think, five or six victories, including like Donnie Long, somebody who Tyson fought early on. Uh, Trevor Burbick gets a unanimous decision and Oliver McCall. So, you know, not shabby wins when you consider what McCall did to Lennox Lewis and um, you know, was, you were never sure what you were going to get with Buster when he showed up. Uh, Buster doesn't have the typical mentality of most boxers, certainly in terms of boxers I've interviewed. Too nice, like kind of reminds me of Anthony Joshua in that way. I, I think he's too reformed from the person that got into boxing that he's too, too sensitive in some ways. Um, and I, I think it speaks really well of him as a human being. But that kind of killer instinct that I think you see in a Floyd Mayweather and Andre Ward, I mean, a lot of the recent the recent guys, that's not Buster. Like Buster did not want big fame, did not want attention. He says in a lot of the pre-fight interviews and post-fight interviews, like, I just want to chill at home. I don't want to be a celebrity. Like, it's nice that Columbus, Ohio uh, enjoyed what I did, but I'm just a guy who likes to chill with my family sort of thing. So uh, you know, and there were lots which is of, not an option when you're heavyweight champion, which is you not. know, like it's like it's, it is, but it's not, it's just kind of not. 
Yeah, and Tyson and Don King, after he wins this, like it's not just that he went back to his default mode with Evander Holyfield. He he gained a bunch of weight, and everybody assigned, oh, he's lazy and he just wants a check and stuff like that. Buster refuted that and said, I would have made a lot more checks if I won. So no, that's not what happened. It was lawsuits that King um, launched against him. They uh, tried to keep all the belts after he beat Tyson. He only snatched the WBC one because he knew something was off here. And and Tyson and King both said, like, really, we should retain the title because of this long count when we knock Douglas down. It's rigged and all of this kind of, you know, pre-Trump sort, sort of, you know, fake news and all that kind of thing, which I think is total bullshit. And Tyson didn't really want to own it during post-fight interviews that HBO set up with Larry Merchant. Um, he allows one quote to sort of exist out there and then sort of doesn't own up to having said it, even though it's a direct quote. So Douglas was dealing with a lot after this, and he probably didn't have a lot of control yet because he'd only just won the title. So he's still really beholden to what the contract was, but also makes a gazillion dollars off of Holyfield in a way that was unprecedented in the sport. I mean, $23 million in 1990. I mean, you think Mike Tyson making 20, 21 million against Spinks, how big that was. It was almost like Holyfield was kind of a tune-up fight in a way with, with how it was being perceived at the time. I mean, I don't remember that. I mean, I was only like 11 years old, but it's weird to think that Douglas had on the table George Foreman and all of the other big names. Holyfield wasn't taken that seriously yet as a heavyweight. And then suddenly, boom, he's floors Douglas in the third round with this ugly knockout in terms of Douglas looking ridiculous, throwing this big wild uppercut in the middle of the ring. I, mean, I think it's the easiest knockout that Holyfield ever scored. So yeah, there's lots behind the scenes of this fight that is so weird and interesting to delve into. And even when you're watching the fight, you're seeing Trump sitting next to uh, Don King and it, they're constantly flashing to Evander Holyfield, who's got a $9 million title shot against Tyson, which is what everybody was expecting was next. And, and a Japanese audience that is so famous for what's that line that Tyson's cornerman says, you, you could hear a rat pissing on cotton. It's so quiet. And it is, it's, it's, Bro, a you can only use that line once you can't once. keep reusing it. And Aaron Snow will use that line till he dies. And it's like, you can't keep doing it, dude. Well, he's got that. And he's got what looks like a giant used condom as, as an end swell. That's all we will ever care about, Aaron Snow. And how did he get this job? How and is I, that your legacy? Shit. Yeah. Well, and then the other is is how does Jay Bright have a job? What is, Jay Bright is studying acting at Bard College, and then he's in Mike Tyson's corner because he lived in this weird warehouse of at-risk kids that Customato assembled. Okay, and that's the last we ever heard of Jay Bright. The second incarnation of Mike yeah, Tyson what a jail. fucking ragtag motley crew for crying out loud. First, yeah. get a seven, get a seven in there. Thanks, thanks, Jay. Appreciate seven, it. Seven, nine, eleven. No, yeah. that's not even a thing. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know, it's fucking it. It just uh, all of this, like I said, the planets aligned. the The way the planets aligned were perfect, you know, and that's. It's all of these things. Um, and one of the things you also brought up earlier that I forgot to say was that uh, the head movement for Tyson, something that a lot of people forget, and that it's not like Tyson invented head movement or Customato invented head movement, 
but he did it in a way that was very different and very aggressive. You know, something where he was trying to create something off of that head movement and not just slip, 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 you know, like trying to avoid punches uh, because that in and of itself is an art, but slip and avoid punches and then deliver something really painful on the end of it. And that's something that you don't normally see from a lot of fighters and something that was very unique about his style in particular. And also one of the reasons why he was built the way that he was built, you know, or I mean, it was kind of a uh, push and pull where they built the style off of the way he was built. But that also kind of just uh, amplified his physique in that way, you know, but regardless, um, we, we we didn't see much of that at all in this fight. And we stopped seeing a lot of that kind of Tyson. Uh, like you said, after the Spinks fight, the death of Customato obviously was uh very important in the mind of Tyson and also probably in the style to some degree. And then Kevin Rooney's, uh, you know, Kevin Rooney carrying on uh, Customato's teaching. And a lot of people forget Kevin Rooney was like pretty freshly retired too. He wasn't even, you know, that long retired from boxing himself. Um, but that being said, he seemed to at least retain some modicum of control or stylistic something with Tyson, at least for a time. Um, but I don't want to rely too much on the myth that, well, Tyson went downhill when Cus died or Tyson went downhill when Kevin Rooney died. When I think that that result was probably inevitable, you know, sooner rather than later, regardless. I think it's Tyson's character. I think, I think it, that's, that, yeah, exactly. That's the issue is Evander Holyfield said the only person he ever saw work harder than he did was Tyson in his prime. That's the only person he looked at and went, fuck, not only is he that much more talented than I am, but he is working harder than I am. And Holyfield was a beast at working throughout his entire career. And here's where we need to give guys credit who have longevity in terms of that's a major part of their legacy, which is a fully legitimate thing to talk about. Tyson does not have that. Tyson is a comet. He is a guy who kind of shows up and it's spectacular and it's a legitimate spectacular when you watch Lomachenko do very similar moves to what the young Tyson did in terms of switching his stance, the, the shifting, creating angles and stuff like that, Tyson was doing that as a 220-pound man rather than a 125-pound man. And I'd argue he does it as fast as Lomachenko does it. And his hand speed is like a middleweight. And he's never getting hit. Like, I mean, it's notable when somebody lands a clean punch on Tyson throughout most of like 35 fights leading up to this. I mean, Buster Douglas, Tyson, Tyson is only 23 years old at this point. Let's just let that seep in. This is a 23 year old guy. And he's done. He's washed up. He's yeah. done. He's only been fighting for five years at this point. And he's already got whatever it is, 37 fights. But if you question where Tyson was in terms of skill level that all fighters recognize, watch highlight videos of him training and watch his feet not just how fast his hands are or how powerful his hands are, but watch how quick his fucking feet are at creating angles. It's like watching Michael Jackson where you're like, you can see it, but you can't even recreate it. It's just somehow not coherent because it's so fast. It's so different than anything you've seen. And when Lomachenko does, we go, oh my God, it's the Matrix. Tyson was that as a heavyweight and he wasn't slower. Like it wasn't like relative to to like a 125 pound guy. He was that fast. And I bet you Lomachenko would give Tyson that credit early on. I bet he learned a lot from Tyson 
because it's very similar when you watch the two of them. But all of that being said, that is not who this guy is. This guy is a come ahead. His body looks different. Like it, he's just not as ripped as he normally was. He 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 had crash dieted. That was becoming a regular thing of him ballooning to 260, 275 pounds between fights. Rooney provided him a bit of that infrastructure that had been there with Cus. Cus dies in 1985 in November. So what, a full, what, three and a half years before this happens. But Tyson was able to hold on. But bit by bit, he's kind of breaking off from all of these people that were with him from the start. And a new group is there. And the new group doesn't really know how to manage him at all. And Tyson is really struggling as a young person with all of the success, this fame. As a young guy, he could never get a girl. He was seen as disgusting. There was a lot of racial tropes. His nickname was the Tan Terror when he was coming up. They used to call him Mighty Joe Young, which is kind of a, a big gorilla-like character that was in a movie. This was thrown at him all the time. He was always told he was dirty. Um, so suddenly... Yeah, become and like and a- sorry to interject real briefly, but also the constant thug stereotypes that were like, dude, they were pervasive. Like from the time he showed up in the news, the whole way. And, and then this white savior narrative with customato and all of these white people are around him, Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton and everything. Like even having to play that role was weird. You know, like as much as it was, Oh, he's from Brownsville, the biggest, dungeon of american life and your the white people's biggest fear he really was growing up largely around white people from about age 12 onwards was the in, entire network of of his support group and in- think about what just having to hear that all the time yeah. every interview you come from brownsville and an awful you know, you're just like geez i'm like fucking 15 years old can you stop yeah. you know what would that do to somebody's mind yeah, it was just primal, primal. And like he's hearing sort of like Jean-Michel Basquiat where he was like, oh, it's it's so primal, i.e. it's a black guy doing it. So you're kind of, he would say, like you're saying I'm a primate. There was an angle of that. You know, we have, we have these Afri- prominent African-Americans entering into white society. Eddie Murphy, uh, Michael Jordan, Mike Tyson, uh, Bill Cosby, and they're all having to play a kind of role about it, which is for each of them strange. It's it's weird for them to enter in. Richard Pryor is another one. And Tyson was like, and Jean-Michel Basquiat too at the same time, right? So I think he was struggling a bit with that in really interesting ways, just like these other prominent celebrities were at that time. Michael Jackson is another one, the first like- who Yeah, a couple of very ill-equipped people for that. Very ill-equipped. And I mean, like Michael Jackson explicitly with Thriller was like, I want to break into white radio. I want to break into, like, I'm going to have Eddie Van Halen play on Beat It. I'm going to have Paul McCartney and sing and do it. I want to be a safe person for white America. I want to be an African-American that they will let in. You have O.J. Simpson with the same kind of agenda to break into. I, I will advertise cars for white people. You know, like Hertz and and this kind of thing. So it's a weird time that way. And Tyson is right there, right there. And for a long time, um, just before this, Mike Tyson is uh, aligned with corporate white America's most conservative companies, Diet Pepsi, Kodak, Toyota, Nintendo. Like it's not the Tyson that people after this generation know. 
This is a Mike Tyson that's very safe. Yeah, he's terrifying to watch in the ring, but he's this cuddly guy with this high-pitched voice that, you know, like is is somebody, it's okay to be around if you're a white person. You don't need to be afraid of him. Like there's all this racism that's pretending it's not racism, that it's inclu inclusiveness to, that is part of his story at this time. Um, and, and even like the language of commentators is so racist in describing him so it's a it's a funny it's a funny place to be uh you know like at that time and also looking back at it but how tyson was internalizing it with all of his conflicts and you know losing his mother so early never knowing his dad growing up in a fucking war zone like he was um you know somebody who was serially bullied who was always receiving homophobic bullying attacks to suddenly becoming the baddest man on the planet is quite a jump, quite a leap for him to make sense of. And, um, and it's all coming to a head here. Like, I think like he just could not cope. Yeah. And it's actually kind of, you know, uh, swaying us toward Japan a little bit too. So Mike Tyson had already fought in Japan by this point, and he'd already done a big press tour in Japan, uh, you know, he had he had visited one of the training facilities of the sumo. I can't remember the sumo city in Japan, right. but there's there's like an entire like city where like they like dedicated to sumo history and culture. It's pretty fucking cool, to be honest. But, sure. you know, he he had kind of infiltrated Japanese culture a little bit, too. However, there was also a real tinge of racism to that shit, too, because they he would go uh, into crowds. And so they would encourage him to go ah like that to the fucking crowds and they'd start running. And, and there was a big fucking thing, which, you know, it's lighthearted and it's fun. But there is also kind of an element of like, mm, this is kind of strange, bro. And also uh, in years later, too, uh, in combat sports, a lot of, you know, other black fighters were kind of pushed in that way onto Japanese combat sports culture like in Pride FC and stuff like that. Anyway, not to dwell on that, but the point is, going into this Douglas fight, Tyson had come back to to Japan, and he was, again, a big deal. He's huge in Japan. You know, they loved him. Uh, he was an attraction everywhere everywhere he went. And that also had kind of mirrored uh, what had happened in decades past, too. George Foreman did the exact same thing. He went there for the, um, I believe it was the Jorge Ramos fight, and where he'd like just fucking just committed an absolute crime on Ramos and like fucking hit him like three times while he was down. And he was, oh, God, it was awful. But George Foreman was a huge attraction in Japan. Everyone was like, look at this fucking massive, you know, like six foot two, six foot three guy who's huge and everybody's scary. And so similarly, Tyson comes back and he's a, in, you were talking about the commercials. He was in Suntory and Suntory dry commercials, Toyota commercials, uh, a couple other, like the Japanese Kodak commercials. He was in a whole bunch of commercials in Japan too. So, I mean, really nobody was thinking about a, a Buster Douglas win. They were priming Tyson to get through this. They're priming Tyson to be the same massive attraction going into a Holyfield fight. You know, this was, this was all about Tyson here. Tyson was way on his way to becoming sports first billion dollar athlete way before Tiger Woods was going to do it or, or Michael Jordan, like the way Jim Carrey created the first $20 million a list. Every I remember month, that. Yeah. That was Mike Tyson for all of sports. Tyson was earning $20 million against Spinks when Michael Jordan was getting two and a half million dollars per season. That is where if we, if we, 
use the Andy Warhol thing of like, what's the value of a painting? It's how much you can get for it. That's Tyson. That's Michael Jordan. And that's not a shitty Michael Jordan. That's a tremendous highlight reel Michael Jordan. And how many games a year? You know, like yeah, a lot of fucking games. And we're talking about, you know, three, four fights a year tops. And at that time, Tyson was on every talk show. Tyson was being referenced in hip hop all the time. He was at a level that totally transcended sports. Every movie star sort of wanting to be seen with him. You know, Eddie Murphy's trying to be seen. The Arsenio with him. episode. I remember the classic Arsenio, Arsenio episode with him. Uh, he and, did a few, actually. He did. And even before he like a- achieved this as the youngest heavyweight champion ever at 20, the way he was marketed so brilliantly by Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton was to say, your grandfather missed Joe Lewis or Miss Rocky Marciano. Your dad didn't see Ali versus Liston. Do not miss Mike Tyson. He was being marketed as a generational myth. And and then he achieved it. And I think like even the way Ali sort of had deference to him, like think about like when, when Tyson fights Larry Holmes, Ali comes over to him and says, get him for me to avenge like one. I think it was Ali's second to last fight. I think, yeah, it was, it was Holmes before Burbick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have in the, in the arena, in three separate sections, Tyson's three girlfriends, Robin Givens, Miss America, and Naomi Campbell. Like he was on that level as a male sex symbol, like to, to America and to corporate America and to sports. He's what all other athletes look up at and go like, how could I ever get to that level? Because like his salary, the and way he'll he, kick my ass and he'll kick my ass. <laughs> but like, the way he's desired in all of these different ways in society was so unprecedented, you know, in a weird way, in the way that the eighties was like the way Eddie Murphy's fame exploded was insane. He was so young. Same with Michael Jackson, you know, 20, 23, 24 with thriller, you know, like it was, there was no point of reference for where these guys were coming from. And Tyson, it was like, I think very similar to Michael Jackson with thriller. It's like, he's 24 and he's just done, by far the biggest album of, of of all time. He's just started. And that's what we thought Tyson would be. In reality, after Sphinx, that was the beginning of the end. And yet, he said 15 years after his loss to Douglas, he said so he he lost the last fight of his career to Kevin McBride in, in, a, in a, such a dismal, depressing end. And I think he was still on the brink of getting like a $50 million package to fight a bunch of more like tomato cans after that. He's, when he was asked about, are you going to retire? What are you going to do? He said, I've been done since 1990. Like, I haven't really cared about this beyond getting a paycheck. I haven't given a shit. I would argue because I just watched the fights before this between Spinks and this. I think after Spinks, we never, he never improved and he got considerably worse thereafter because how he looked against Frank Bruno and Tillman, it's a different guy. I don't think who he was against Spinks and the way I think boxing experts and boxers look at that version of Tyson, I don't know that many heavyweights alive could have beaten that guy, which doesn't mean his legacy is he's the greatest ever because I would give more credit to a Floyd Mayweather with longevity with that he was always disciplined to be in shape for every fight, even when he almost got knocked down, being in condition, being that discipline, his mental toughness, he deserves all the credit for that. 
But Tyson, what he does is he makes us imagine how good he could have been as opposed to what it was, which is 15 more years after Douglas. And we never see the guy that captured our imagination the way he did leading up to Spinks. So that's the trouble with Tyson. I think he's a moving target. Yeah. And a, and a, and a gravitational force in that regard too, where everybody's waiting for their shot, whatever he's doing affects the rest of the division. Uh, even now, fucking couple of years ago, he, you know, fights an exhibition and it's like, you know, people are lucrative waiting. fight of the year. Most lucrative fight of the year is Mike and, Tyson fighting. And they're Jones. sitting there going, well, let's wait and see what Mike Tyson does because he just fought an exhibition. He's in great shape. Maybe he'll want to fight someone's, you know, it's like, fuck me, you guys, you know, but the whole, but that's the point is that he's a gravitational force. Even when he's retired, he's fighting fucking exhibition and he looks like pretty good for his age. You know, he's going to get fucking absolutely annihilated by anybody in the top 100, but that's not the point. That's not even the point. That's, you know, we don't, we don't want to hear about how he'd get annihilated. We want to wonder, we want to fucking imagine. We want to fucking have the whimsical fucking fantasies. You know, that's the whole fucking point. That's what Mike Tyson gives us and gave us then. He, he's our, he, he, after Babe Ruth, he's our version of Babe Ruth. Even Muhammad Ali, for, for all that Ali did, where he had a way better career than Tyson, way more memorable fights and all of that, I totally subscribe to the idea of Teddy Atlas saying the five times Tyson was really challenged by an opponent, he lost every single time. Every single time there was somebody pushing back. It's true. File that under, you know, you know, <laughs> dog, light shines on dog's ass. Right? Yeah, and exactly. And, and, <laughs> Fucking Teddy. Know, Salty ass Teddy. Who, who, yeah, who was one of the loudest voices that Tyson was going to lose to Spinks? The same guy, Teddy Atlas. He's like, oh, I see. Spinks has all the ingredients. To- yeah, <laughs> he well, also I'm, he also I'm, tried I'm to fight gonna... George Foreman when his fighter was fighting That's George right. Foreman. Would have gotten right. fucking folded up into a chair and tossed down a hill. To- totally right. But I, I yeah. Anyway, it's... sorry, fucking Teddy Atlas. No, but I just think it's it's a thing that Tyson. You know, it's like when you have that much charisma, when it's like, I don't even think we look at Tyson as sort of a charismatic athlete or celebrity. It's like, it's like we have Achilles. It's like we have somebody out of Homer or out of, you know, some storybook sort of thing. It's the way we dealt with him. It's like anything he gave us that made him seem human. We go, oh my God, this guy is part of our race, part of our species. That's incredible. Cause he's so clearly, out there he's just doing things we've never seen before ali we needed to know he had a dancing partner to know how amazing he was tyson we didn't it was just when is he fighting next and not just in the arturo gaddy way that he's going to be so exciting but his personality was so exciting he he was this moby dick in a fishbowl kind of kind of thing which how many of those have we ever had in anything like in in sports or or entertainment or in music, you know, like Michael Jackson needed some backup dancers or else you'd be like, is this music that good? You know, like I like the dancing kind of thing. But some guys, Frank Sinatra, you don't need it because it, it has this thing. And I'm not saying I love Frank Sinatra, but that was kind of Tyson is it's just he he could capture our imagination in a way that I think very few athletes in history have been able to do. And I would say just having interviewed him closely in some very tense settings, he is simultaneously the most insecure person I've ever met in my entire life and also the most arrogant. 
he does not view himself in the historical context of being a great boxer or a great gladiator. He sees himself as like one of history's great generals. Like he's on par with Alexander the Great or Napoleon you know, or Genghis Khan. And no, he is not that, but he captures our imagination that way. And I don't know why, but it's kind of undeniable when you consider how many people have managed to stay culturally relevant since 1985. This guy was 18 on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and he's been all over the media. He could say he's going to fight Logan Paul next month, and it's going to make more money than any boxer right now. It's going to make more than Tyson Fury. Yeah. It's going to make more than Anthony Joshua. It's going to make more than Canelo. And he is almost 60. Like, that's who this guy is now. And this is before he turned, like where he lost the shine of who he was sort of thing. So that is the, the demarcation of what Buster Douglas is for Mike Tyson's legacy, which is weird for us to go back because we were just kids at the time, pre-internet and suddenly you hear the news, Tyson lost. And it was, you know, uh, 10 years later when 9-11 happened, it was like, this is unimaginable. Even in Canada, where I was, it's unimaginable. That's how it felt in a way in childhood to lose this guy because it was like, how could anybody be better or bigger or more important than Muhammad Ali? But it felt like he was going to be. It just did. Yeah, dude. There was, I had Mike Tyson's punch out. You know, I've, I told I told this story on a somewhat recent episode. I don't remember which episode, but I like just a, we used to fucking uh, every so often, like I never got good grades. Even when I was a little, never got good grades, but we still got grades because I went to a fucking Catholic school. My brother used to get like straight A's and shit. So for every A or every like two A's or something like that, my parents would like, you know, get us a Nintendo game or some shit back when they were like not that expensive. And I remember one time I chose Mike Tyson's punch out because I like rarely got to choose because like I said, I fucking did not get good grades. And I chose Mike Tyson's punch out and it was like, you know, our quickly our favorite game. We loved that fucking game. Oh, it's like, amazing. like everybody did. It's it was, amazing. Even now, it's just it's a simple, dumb, great game that I still have never beat. I've never beaten it to this day. Not even oh. a single fucking time. Not going to lie to anybody. But do you, regardless. Do you remember the password? Do you remember the password to get to Tyson? Seven four seven something. No, zero zero seven three seven three five nine six three. Come on, I don't know. Yeah, see, I never use the password. I just used to get my ass beat all the fucking time trying to ever use a password. I, I've no, I'm not gonna lie. I've used it a couple times, but even using the password, I've still never won. I want some comments criticizing this shit. Never use the password to fight this. The you know dream. Yeah, yeah. no, that's a lie. I've used it a few times, I've, but I've never won using it either. So, regardless, uh, it was a fucking great game. But that's the whole point. Is like it's ubiquitous. Like he's very. Uh, oh. Everybody knew about him when you've made it to like your own video game. You know, you're on magazines. You have your own. Uh, he had his own documentary in the mid eighties, which was like a very, you know, independently produced documentary, but then they went on to make more kind of documentary type of things about him. And you know, they were doing news specials, et cetera. You know, everybody knew about him. So he was so by this time where he had lost, just like I said, he was everywhere, a cultural phenomenon, like you said. Um, but even so, even so going into the James Buster Douglas fight. So the odds were so fucking wide, you know, like, Pretty much everybody, everybody but anybody related to Buster Douglas and even probably some of them too. Uh, very few people thought he would win. 
the odds were so wide that it was thought of as an afterthought. Most of the press tour going on into the fight was about Mike Tyson in Japan, like I was saying. And then, you know, on the night of the fight, like I'm watching the broadcast here, it almost seems like an unusual amount of pageantry given that they thought that, you know, D Douglas is being brought in, brought in to lose, basically. Like, it was a long-ass ceremony. They got a fucking a belt ceremony, another belt or kind of like award ceremony after a that. Japanese belt. It was like some weird Japanese belt. And Tyson was like, what are you doing? Like, And a whole nother award, too, that they're trying to give him for, like, you know, outstanding something or other. He didn't really seem too interested in that either and then jimmy lennon bless his soul is doing a really slow announcing job i'm like dude are they getting paid by the fucking minute here what's going on i don't know what was happening but it was a really like it, that's the fucking wink that's that wink before you get your fucking ass beat by the super fast punch you never see coming um uh, but i so mean you know it, it, yeah, there was a lot of pageantry, dude. And it seemed like a really long ceremony for what it was. It just seemed like, you know, they would have gotten right to it. But no, that was definitely not the case. However, yeah, for all of his really hard attempts, Lampley was kept trying to deliver like a fucking classic line. He never delivered one on this broadcast. Merchant stole it from him a few times. He said he would shock most of the world if he could make it into the middle rounds, obviously referring to Buster Douglas. He said that right before the bell rang. Oh man, you know, it's like, it's tough. And I've said this before, we've done the revisiting things. It's tough when you're kind of having to like reverse engineer a fight because you know what the result is, but you're having to kind of watch it somewhat unbiased or somewhat, you know, objective thinking, all right, I got to just watch it. Like you don't know what's going to happen. It's impossible. But nonetheless, uh, you know, this is a fight that's, it's pretty easy to watch because you know what's going to happen. It's so big and there's so much history behind it. But it's also it's a pretty watchable fight because you get to see somebody just dismantled. Yeah, I mean, I agree. The pageantry leading up to it and the crowd is so quiet. It it is, it is weird to think if this fight had happened somewhere else. I mean, the other thing rewatching is you're just like, what if what if the referee just decided when Douglas, you know, in the eighth, eighth round, just to stop it? Like, where how far would Tyson have gone? What would the like would Holyfield have had this knockout? I mean, it was interesting. It reminded me of something like Atlas says to Michael Moore against Holyfield, I think in the first fight is he's going to lose, but you're, you're going to make it happen to somebody else. You need to, you need to make him lose. And I was thinking about that because it's an interesting thing. And you can see more processing it. Like, wait a minute, he is losing this fight. I am winning this. Like I want to win. I want to be the guy that fucking beats him. There's something about Tyson, like, was he just ready to lose going into this fight? Like, was it kind of inevitable soonish? I think so. I, I mean, if you just aren't training and you're this undisciplined, you're this arrogant, um, the first thing you notice as soon as the bell rings, you're seeing a collision of two very different kinds of willpower. Tyson, it's expectation. With Douglas, it's want. It's, it's I want, I need, I need this to happen. I want this to happen. I'm going to earn this. This is a fight for anybody who says like, oh, like Tyson did a lot better than we're kind of projecting. By the end of this fight, Tyson is outlanded 230 to 101. And that's... And I might even question that 101. <laughs> yeah, I, I would mean... too. I would too. And Douglas 
If anything, it looks like it's more when you're watching it, and it's consistent throughout the whole fight. Every round, Douglas is dominant. The other thing that you see with Douglas that's really interesting, Tyson, right away, you're, you're aware, he's only coming forward. The head movement is him just standing directly in front of Douglas. And Tyson, Tyson has the ability, it's not just in boxing, I think, at a beginning level, it's sort of like speech chess. You're trying to disrupt the other guy's game. If you can disrupt him, you can take advantage of that. Tyson was able to make people do what he wanted them to do, to be where he wanted them to be to set up his shots. He was like a great chess player in that way of thinking a few moves ahead as a pressure counterpuncher. In, in this fight, what you're seeing is Tyson has no game plan. It's just, I'm strong and I can punch really fast. And if I charge at you, I'm going to intimidate you. Everybody knows I'm the baddest man on the planet. What, what could you possibly do to, do to me? Whereas Douglas has so much intentionality with the way he moves the entire fight. The entire fight, he's relaxed. He never looks stressed fighting Mike Tyson. We're all stressed for him, but he is not stressed at all. He looks relaxed and he looks like, I'm going to kick your fucking ass tonight. And he has that energy the whole time is, fuck you, fuck you. You think you can beat me, intimidate me? I'm bigger than you. I'm going to beat the shit out of you. I'm better shaped than you. I finally trained the way everybody has told me I needed to train. And I can feel it. I know that I can do this the whole night. And I, what I love about watching Douglas, I've never appreciated watching this before, because I don't think I've seen it all the way through in a long time, is there's no time where when Tyson charges where Douglas doesn't take a step back and punch if he if he he's sticking and moving so effectively that it's exactly like watching a matador with a bull you are conditioning the bull to do what you want him to do and to give up doing what he wants to do and that's what you see him doing to Tyson from the opening bell is everything Tyson wants to do with where he's at is not in condition and all his arrogance Douglas says no 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 this is going to lead up to the inevitability of me knocking you out. I'll, I'll wait around until you give me that. But you're until then, you're going to do exactly what I want you to do. If you come forward, I want to condition you to know I'm going to jab your, your, your head off. And I've got some right hands over the top. He's got these sweeping hooks with both hands. Everything is landing on Tyson. I mean, he, he lands 50... 52% of his shots on Tyson. Tyson, who is a, a, a defensive savant going up, go, like up to Spinks. It's an event when he gets hit cleanly. In this, he is hit 52% of the time. That's how good Douglas is and how bad a version of Tyson this is. So what you see in this first round tells you the whole fight, like perf perfectly well. And it's like, can you just accept that what you're seeing is really happening? And it is tough to accept. It's tough to it's tough to accept really from the beginning because you see a guy in Buster Douglas who's 230-something pounds, like 231 or something like that, but he's 6'3", 6'4". You know, it's yeah. a re very good-sized heavyweight, um, very modern-sized heavyweight, if you will. Uh, sure. And he's moving. Man, he's moving. He's using angles. Uh, he's sticking his jab. Uh, it seems very clear very early on that he's ready to use the angles and ready to jab Tyson around. And, 
you know, conversely, Tyson looks hesitant in the first round. Really, there was only uh, in the opening minute, like one flurry from Tyson in the opening minute. And he can be a slow starter, like you mentioned earlier, against taller, good jabbing fighters. That's not uh, out of the ordinary, necessarily. One of the guys you brought up was Quick Tillis. He had a heck of a time with Quick Tillis. It was actually before he was champion. It was like, a, I think, a 10-round fight. But it was it was a close 10-round fight. Uh, was it Tony Tucker? No, not Tony Tucker. Um, yeah, he had trouble with Tucker too. Was it Tony Tucker? Yeah, sure. like I sometimes I get my wires crossed with some of his opponents, but he had a there were a handful of kind of taller opponents who could jab. Mitch Green, and, Mitch yeah. Green Rebalta, I mean, Bone Crusher Smith, too. Some guys yeah. who, if if not if they weren't outboxing him, they had the ability to kind of stifle him to either jab and then clinch on the inside, prevent him from working yeah. on the inside. One of the things that you were talking about, you know, him, his ability to kind of make opponents do what he wanted to do was that inside when he would clinch, he wasn't just a kind of mindless, like, okay, if I'll fall into the clinch, like he'd fall into the clinch, but then use the clinch to his advantage. Like, all right, you want to grapple with me? Fine. A grapple uppercut fucking grapple hook hook type of shit where he'd mix in the punches with that sort of clinching. That's gone. There's none of that here. Almost and none. And he's flat footed from the beginning. Tyson is flat footed. Watch any of the early fights. He is on his toes the whole time. To create angles, you got to be on your toes. You can't be flat footed. Yeah. And, and and just last point on this, that I thought was really interesting. It reminded me of something that Michael Bent told me that his trainer, wasn't it George? What's that great trainer? Benton. That that Benton, yeah. George yeah. Benton watched Bent spar with Evander Holyfield. And this was when Ben had kind of like he'd lost a fight and it's like, am I gonna be a fighter or not? sparred with Holyfield and had this great effort and he came over to Benton and Benton said, you know, when I'm watching you, I can't tell who the heavyweight champion is. When you watch this fight, try to tell who the heavyweight champion is. And Buster never lets you think it's Mike Tyson. If you're just judging what they're doing in the fight, there's not 10 seconds where you'd think, oh, clearly Mike Tyson is the heavyweight champ. Clearly he has this great pedigree and all of that. Douglas just erases it. And, and and never gives it up like except when he gets knocked down 10 seconds you know or sorry 14 seconds of of the entire fight other than that 14 seconds i i dare you to try to find five seconds where you'd go tyson clearly is the heavyweight champion the the undisputed has all the titles he never shows it here yeah and even against the guys we were just talking about where he had trouble against them there wasn't a whole lot of acquiescing in those fights. Like he might've had trouble. He might've lost yeah. some rounds or some exchanges, but he wasn't like giving up. You know, he was, he was still in there being a pain in the fucking ass for them and they hated it. And here he just wasn't that he wasn't that same type of fighter. Didn't have the same type of mentality. And so the problem was that Douglas keeping his distance in round one, really uh, using his range and his jab but the problem was Tyson was like leaping into these clinches and then doing nothing. And that became a, a theme throughout the fight where he was like, you know, ah, and he'd like charge into a clinch. And in other fights, you'd see him do that, but then go to work. He was just doing it and tying himself up. He was, so he was doing nothing. Almost all of the work was being done by uh, Buster Douglas from that kind of mid and outside range. You're not going to win the fight that way. You know, like you just, that's a bad uh, strategy period. 
And it's, so it's almost kind of tough to know too, when you're looking at the corner, because yeah, dude, Aaron Snowell probably doesn't belong there. doesn't have any sort of pedigree to be there. And then like the rest of his corner is just a bunch of bozos for the most part. So, I mean, I'm not trying to be rude to them, but it's just, you know, this was a very thrown together thing, but even so I got to give Aaron Snowell some credit because he was giving him the correct advice for much of the fight. It was, it wasn't the right way he was doing. He's like whispering in his ear and shit like that. That probably is not going to work for Mike Tyson in this situation, but nonetheless, he was telling him, Hey dude, put your punches together, stop falling into the clinch, you know, use your jab and watch out for his jab. You're just letting yourself, you know, get hit by the jab and you move your head. And all of those things are, that's the correct advice. That's exactly what Mike Tyson should have been doing. He could not do it or would not do it. And so the point is this first round is just a microcosm of exactly what happens for the vast majority of the fight. How many punches does Mike Tyson throw in the first round? Oh God, I don't even know. Not very many. 13. 13. That's, that's where Mike Tyson was confronting what Buster showed him in that first round. He threw 13 punches. So again, that to me is the struggle here. Inevitability of that kind of performance, because that's going to be Tyson throughout the whole fight, other than his one uppercut he lands, which I think is a totally lucky thing. I got Larry Murchison, said, he's been waiting for that punch the whole fight. No, he wasn't. He's flat-footed. He's not aggressive. He's not creating angles. He's not looking for anything. He is like... I remember somebody said this about comedy, that it's one of the most judicious forms of entertainment, that you could be the most famous person on the planet. If you show up on a stage, Jack Nicholson in the 80s, let's say, you get about 20 seconds of people going like, wow, it's Jack Nicholson. That's amazing. And if you don't make people laugh, it's get the fuck off the stage. We've seen this a number of times in recent years where famous people try to go do stand up and it's it's just fucking nah. That is what Mike Tyson looks like. He's a famous guy going up onto a stage saying, get ready for a great hour of comedy. And it's fucking terrible. He has nothing to say. He has no ability. He's not ready for this. And you're you're kind of like, there's nowhere to go. You just have to deal with this six foot four guy who's 230 pounds, who's going to throw fucking everything at you. As the commentators, Lampley and Merchant are saying, oh, Buster's never been a puncher. Tell that to Tyson's face at the end of this fight, or you get punched in the face by somebody who's 6'4", and watch the punches that he's throwing. Another thing, Douglas has a full foot more reach than Tyson, and he keeps him in that range the entire fight. Tyson never closes it. If he closes it, Douglas holds him. If he's on the outside of it, Douglas stays right where I can smack you at will. Oh, keep doing your windshield wiper. I'll just wait until you get tired because you're clearly not in shape and fucking whack you and whack you and whack you. But Tyson was never able to close that range the way like, you know, he's only got 70, 71 inch arms. He's only about 5'10". So he's fighting these huge guys. It's extraordinarily difficult to close that distance and catch them off guard. And if you're not in immaculate shape, you get this. This is much more common to to happen. Even if you got really fast hands and you're really powerful like Tyson is, it's the footwork that sets it up. What's the first thing you lose as you get old? Footwork. You lose foot speed. And that's you're seeing a version of that with his lack of conditioning. He's just not in condition because it's so much harder to do. And he's flat-footed this entire fight. <laughs> like the, the whole fucking fight. 
He he just looks like a guy kind of off balance. And Tyson's agility is what really defined him as a heavyweight. It's what makes him such a superior version of sort of the Joe Frazier mold is Frazier was not a defensive juggernaut. Frazier wasn't switching stances in order to create new openings. He was a, a more limited version of, of Tyson, often a lot better stamina. Tyson has some serious issues with breathing. He's asthmatic. Um, it's another thing about Buster Douglas going into this fight is he was taking penicillin less than two weeks before the fight because of an infection. So it just tells you like Douglas just wanted this. He trained for this and Tyson, it's exactly the opposite going into it. So when the Douglas camp at the end of this fight says, don't let anybody tell you this was a shitty version of Tyson. I'm sorry, but it was a shitty version of Tyson. I, and I fault him for it. Yeah, it but could be don't... both. It's okay. You know, yeah. like you, it was a shitty version and the road was laid out for you and you walked over it. You did yeah. exactly what you're supposed to do and it's okay. You can, you know, we can live in a world where that's what happened. Absolutely. You know, a- absolutely. Like, you know, I still give full respect to Floyd Mayweather for everything he achieved, but I'd say, in my opinion, you lost to Casillo the first time, but you fought him the next time. You did what a champion's supposed to do, and I give you all that credit. So I, I don't know why we're so binary about these guys, because there, there's a lot of middle ground, like, you know, like anybody where this whole fight is just reduced Reality's to... complex, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Shit happens. Yeah, and like... Shit happens. Oh, he beat Douglas because of this long count. Really? That, that's what you're going to rest on the laurels of that? Like, okay, good luck. But I bet you, had he got through this, what Holyfield would have done to him? Yeah, in the next it, exactly. And <laughs> Holyfield? Like, okay, what did he do to him? You know, that version of Holyfield. Yeah, several years later and a yeah. heart condition later. And, yeah, yeah. Well, some steroids later too, but... <laughs> that was but, evan fields i don't know why you're conf- conflating that's true totally guys. different guy yeah well but then again tyson losing hair like at like 21 oh it's a stress condition yeah okay. but hey as far as i'm concerned pretty much anybody who had the money for it was on something at some point even now like this is not you know it's not even a debate for me but no it's it's notable for some however but <laughs> that being said you know uh actually you know so obviously first round douglas opens up fucking takes the round pretty big makes a statement shows everybody like i'm not here to to lie down and he wasn't obviously but um that being said also tyson could be a slow starter he wasn't always a fast starter sometimes he took a couple rounds to like figure shit out that's pretty normal for a fighter too and then in, in round two actually tyson came out he's moving his head and i was like oh okay. remember him doing this it lasted like five seconds dude he you know did a couple boo 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 and then that's it. <laughs> Douglas just went back to fucking jabbing him and controlling him on the inside, you know, and that's again, another microcosm of how it goes. Like you'd have quick flashes of success, but then they would get overlapped by what Douglas was doing very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of something George Foreman said. I, I asked Foreman one time, did you want to be in the ring? Were you a fighter where it's like, I can't wait to get into the ring and be there. Once you climb through the ropes, uh, like I'm where I want to be. He said only one time in my career prior, prior to the 10 years off was fighting Muhammad Ali. That was the only time I ever wanted to be there. Every other time I was scared. I was nervous. I, I It's just so much stress to be there in this fight. Like you just feel Tyson is desperate 
That's what's weird about it. Because up until this point, even the two fights we were mentioning prior to this for Tyson, he doesn't look desperate. He looks sloppy. He doesn't look in condition, but he doesn't look desperate. Tyson in this fight himself is trying to be like, oh, wait, I'm not Jaws in this movie. I'm not coming to get this guy. This guy's coming to get me. I need to get rid of him because he's going to start to believe yeah. the narrative. And so there's a desperation. So you're right. You see pretty routinely at the beginning of the rounds, Tyson comes in and tries to throw something big. But the feeling is, go away. Like, you're stressing me out. Buster is never fighting that way. Buster is really out. stepping into his punches. Buster, if you told him it was a 36-round fight, ah, okay. You know, like, it wouldn't. I don't think it would have changed anything with what, what his style was. He was yeah. in condition to go 36 rounds for this. And, and he was enjoying it. You, like he looks like he's enjoying doing what would be the nightmare for most of the planet going into this fight, which is you have a 12 round fight with Mike Tyson. Like, I think most people would be like, what if you could, what if I cut my arm off instead? Could I trade that in sort of thing? Buster looks like he's having fun through this and his corner is too. And Tyson's corner, I don't know what they're It's bizarre how they're they're dealing with it and Tyson he goes back to his corner he looks you see a glimpse of the bullied kid where it's like oh my god what is everybody going to think of me after this what is everybody oh, he's god. got his head down pretty much between yes. every round he's just gonna... he looks like a loser he looks like a loser and it reminded me of what like but Butch Lewis said going into the Sphinx fight is that Tyson understood Nobody will ever accept me outside of this ring if I don't perform tonight. As every the whole world is watching me tonight against this guy, I will never be accepted if I don't. This is an audition for the rest of my life and and the legacy of who I am. Buster, it's its own version of that as a crucible for him, and he's not dealing with it well. You know, he's he's just not ready because I think. You know, you could only keep things together for so long with the elements that were there with his personality and his upbringing and all the trauma and everything. And I think by the second round, he's like, this guy's not intimidated. He's in better shape. I don't know how to answer any of the questions he's asking me. And you're not supposed to ask me questions. So it's an emperor with no clothes thing by the second round. And I mean, just in the second round, Douglas's accuracy the shots are landing clean. They're in combination. There are several hard shots that penetrate Tyson's guard in a way we, we just haven't seen before. Is It's not just lucky shots. It's that, oh, this is where they, where they stack up. Like Buster is just better at, at this point when they're meeting. I don't know what it would have been if Bus this version of Buster had met the Tyson who fought Spinks. I would love to see it. But in terms of where they are on this night in February of 1990, Buster is kind of like, I am for real, you're not for real, and you have no plan B against this. And you've never seen anything that I'm doing to you. And Tyson is just staying right in front of him. Tyson is a heavy bag for most of this fight. And Buster is just punishing him. So you see Tyson on the inside and at mid-range. He's he's never getting off first, which Buster does throughout the fight. And um Tyson is not in any way counterpunching effectively. He's not applying any meaningful pressure. Nothing works effectively. Tyson's trying a few body shots. Some of them land, but not much. He looks lackadaisical. And Buster just begins to open up and land over half of these shots. And you can see him almost being like, can I trust this? 
like, can I dominate this guy? I think I think I can. And that is something you're going to see build is his confidence growing as Tyson confidence is low at the beginning and it just ebbs and ebbs and ebbs. He's just bleeding out throughout the whole fight. Second round, I have totally cleanly Tyson being outclassed, two nothing buster. Um, and Tyson is only throwing one shot at a time. He's pot shotting yep. and none of it is working. And he looks a little, a little bit rattled uh, by a combination toward the end of round two. Doesn't look good for him, dude. You know, he going into round three, not much changes. I mean, I wish I could say it was. I think round three was a little bit closer, but it still was a pretty clear uh, Buster Douglas round. Tyson, uh, you know, he's landing a handful of shots to the body here and there. Every so often, he's really looking for his hook for some reason. He doesn't seem to trust his right hand. I know that he had been kind of having issues with one of his uh, shoulders and that type of shit. So I don't know if he had an issue with his right hand or his shoulder here, but he really wasn't throwing his right hand much. He was jabbing okay, throwing, working overtime on his left hook, but just not really landing anything. And anything he is landing, Buster Douglas is pretty much absorbing it. Um, you you talked about it earlier, like uh, Mike Tyson throwing type of, type of shit, like kind of a get off me type punches. And we see that from fighters all the time. You know, like there's a difference between a kind of like a ha, 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 you know, kind of moving jab and a sort of like step into it jab, like a, I'm going to hurt your ass jab. And Buster Douglas is throwing him, I'm going to hurt your jab. He's he's stepping into his punches and he's really kind of letting Tyson know, like, I'm not going to stand here and I'm not going to throw with you, but I'm going to let you know that what I land is going to hurt. You know, I'm I'm he's putting some shit into his shots. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe James Douglas, maybe is not a puncher. He never really was, but he's pretty much putting what he has into these shots and he's making them count, too, because he's not missing them all over the place. Whereas Mike Tyson he's throwing single shots and missing a lot through round three. Like it's it's three zip, dude. You know, like you said earlier, kind of a we can't really trust what we're seeing type of situation. Commentators, uh, you know, you got Jim Lampley, Larry Merchant, and Ray Leonard on the mic on one of the calls. There's a couple of other versions too, but this, this was the HBO version. And they're all sitting there going like, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see. You know, Tyson looks kind of sluggish, but sometimes he goes a little slow. This is his game. He's a counter, and I'm kind of like, hmm. you know, of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, but still... Again, it's like, how, who am I going to trust? You're my own lion eyes. You know, I can see this shit happening, unfolding right before us. But three rounds zip, dude. Pretty clear. Yeah, 100%. Uh, at the end of three rounds, 52 to 16 is the punches landed. So, I mean, Buster, even where we go at the end, where it's like almost three to one, two and a half to one, rather, in terms of punches landed. Buster, it's like four to one at the point after three rounds. Um it's really weird because to see this version of Tyson, it's so easy to underrate who he was. And yet to see the other version, I think it's so easy to overrate who he was. And I, I kind of, that's where I kind of land with Tyson as a legacy. I think he's simultaneously the most overrated and the most underrated heavyweight of all time. I, I think both of them have an argument and they go too far in, in a weird, in a weird sort of way. But by this third round, Tyson is so available to be hit in a way we've never seen before. Douglas is in such shape that you're like, he's going to do this the entire fight, and he's going to. And Tyson just looks desperately sluggish. 3 nothing, and it's not even close. Like, I mean, I, I don't know who the hell could possibly look at the metrics or just watch this fight and think Tyson is remotely in this fight. It's, it's dominance. It's total dominance. You used desperate before. He looks desperate. 
that's what he looks like. He's uh, going to and from his corner throughout the round. He just doesn't. He doesn't look like a fighter who knows what's going on or what to do really uh, with the with the opponent in front of him. Um, and even like I said earlier, his corner going into round four, his corner telling him punch more, punch inside again. Like I said, correct advice, not doing it. He is, and to his credit, Buster Douglas is not allowing him to. He's not allowing him to get inside and do that kind of work. Uh, and just about any time he opens up, he's he's saying no. He's snapping back and saying, no, like you are not going to get momentum. And so you have to, again, it's a bad version of Tyson, but you do have to give Douglas the credit because he steps in and does what he's supposed to do. Uh, you know, he's back to the jab. Uh, Tyson's head movement short-lived. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's uh, fucking rinse and repeat. Uh, Tyson reaching with his right hand. Douglas almost catches him with a big uppercut, I noted. But again, it's like, you know, now I know how the fight ends. I'm looking for that type of shit, so it might not be fair. But uh, Douglas a little bit hesitant this round, but Tyson not doing much to fill the gap. Uh, etc. A hook from Tyson, body shot from Tyson, but then Douglas counters with a big right hand before the bell. So again, every single time Tyson tries to get some momentum, he tries to seize something for himself. Douglas is saying no, dude. He's absolutely swatting it down, and that psychologically has got to be taking a toll on Tyson too. But bro, four rounds to zip, bro. You're the heavyweight champion, right? You're going into this fight. You're expected to win. Massive favorite. You've just dropped four rounds. And I mean, I can't imagine Tyson's not an idiot. He's not sitting there after in his corner after the fourth round and going like, yeah, I think I got four. I'm, I'm, I'm good here. You got to know. I mean, like you're getting fucking whopped. You just, just whapped up here, you know? Yeah. I mean, you have to think, is he moving into some sort of religious territory of I'm Mike Tyson. I'm a chosen fighter. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm some vessel. For something carrying me. Yeah, I mean, this isn't supposed to be happening. Yeah, everybody couldn't believe in me if I didn't, if I wasn't legit, and and if I couldn't convince myself that I'm this good, that I'm 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 the greatest fighter who ever lived. You're hearing all of these things, and and it's misread as confidence. It's it's insecurity. Tyson is. It's the barking dog. Yeah, it's so insecure. There's no fire in Tyson in this fight. Previously, I think he's been so conditioned through his training and how disciplined he is, he fights like a wildcat. I mean, it looks like that, but but at the same time, as a pressure counterpuncher, it's chess. He is putting people in position to hit them. It's not brute force that's getting those shots like where to their destination. It's not just hand speed. It, it is him knowing where to move a person. Like he he's so dismissed and again i think there's a racial component to this that it's it's a primal instant he's a natural fighter he's not a natural yeah, fighter. he's a street fighter yeah he's a that's street not what a fucking street fighter does yeah. no he's an animal and that kind of thing you're hearing all of that kind of language that is just sort of dog whistling a lot of racist shit where whereas you know or, or like rocky marciano like you, you hear the same thing with italians all the time you know where it's just he's gritty and all of this kind of thing I think Marciano was a much more basic fighter than Tyson, but I think Tyson was tremendously scientific in terms of following what Customato had designed for his body type and his style and implementing it. As we say, not just knocking everybody out, but never getting hit. That doesn't just happen. That's not an accident. That is the way he was taught to be. And again, watch his training videos when he's getting preparation for fighting people. Like he was created to do this. And he executed. 
But at this point, there is no scaffolding supporting him any longer. He's on his own. And this guy is not ready to be on his own. I mean, Tyson today is doing really well. The main reason he's doing well is not Tyson. It's that he has the perfect wife who is really like his business manager who looks after everything. Like I, I've been around her. Like she is a, a brilliant woman at dealing with Mike Tyson and creating all these business opportunities, managing him so well. This guy is a convicted rapist that society has totally let back in in a way that like none of these other disgraced canceled people are remotely permitted to get in. And I'm not saying like Tyson's charisma is, is part of that. The other part is his wife in terms of managing him. It's been and a lot he, of good PR. Yeah, a, yeah. A brilliant PR, right? Like, I mean, he had a fucking children's cartoon. Like, do you think Bill Cosby's like Fat Albert cartoons are gonna have reruns anytime soon? Given, given what his conduct was? Like, that's how crazy this is. But but this version of Mike Tyson, it's just like Jay Bright is there offering nothing. His corner is offering nothing. He doesn't trust or respect anybody around him. And this nightmare is clearly just coming to fruition. And it's just a question of how long can I stand up to just 50% of this, this huge in-shape guy beating the shit out of me. And Tyson has said later on, this is one of the fights he's most proud of, not ashamed of, but proud of because of the beating he took. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember, I forget who said this, but like the psychology of a fighter. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. But like, I think like, I think it was Customato who said, Oh, like heart is the most important thing in a fighter. And he's like, bullshit. Heart just allows you to take a savage beating. If all you've got is heart, what are you going to accomplish in boxing? We, what we're seeing is Tyson's heart in this fight in terms of how much punishment he's he's taking. Because this is a, a savage beating. Savage beating. That's the only thing that's really measurable in this is how much leather he just eats. Because he's totally available to be hit. Douglas controls the range in this round even better than the previous three. And you're getting some snapshots, some telegraphing of what the end is going to be. Douglas is setting up shots where in his own mind, he's like, that worked. I can actually commit to those punches even more because Tyson has no defense for it. So you're seeing the way he backs up and pivots and turns around. So he kind of gets an orbit of Tyson a few times, which is exactly how he finishes Tyson with jab, 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 setting up with the uppercut and that sort of thing. You see glimpses of that at the end of this fight with the rights and the uppercut and all Tyson can do is answer with wild, desperate shots that don't really do anything. And Douglas is, has no concern for the myth of Tyson. He probably is the only person in Tokyo that is registering what is actually in front of him. And the rest of us are just seeing the image. And so Douglas, total control for nothing. And, and it actually continues into round five because at least it, in round four, it's kind of like, all right, it looks like Tyson's, I'm not going to say he's changing momentum or swinging anything. That's not true. But at least there were some moments in round four where he does seem like he's understanding he's got to get more work in. And it's like, okay, all right, fine. Get more work in. And then as soon as round five starts, moments into it, any idea that Mike Tyson had that he's going to fight this round aggressively Buster Douglas nips that shit right in the bud real quick and has a real big round, stuns Tyson two or three times during the round. And even, you know, 
like just my quick little technical thing because some I, I like some of this stuff. I know some people it's boring, but uh, one of the things Buster Douglas is doing in round five is I mean, like he does a real hard parry of of Tyson's jab, and when I mean a hard parry, I mean Tyson is going in with his jab, and Douglas is like pushing him like feet fucking with his parry which is a really dangerous thing to do because if you mistime that parry bro you're gonna get fucking dinged yeah you're wide open because your arm's over here and so but he's so confident my you know this is kind of what it was telling me watching it that he's so confident in this round that he's just beating mike tyson's ass so bad that every time tyson's leaping in even just with a quick hook or a jab He's just going and just shoving him like way off. He beat his ass in round five, dude. Yeah, he really did. Um, You're seeing glimpses of Holyfield looking very interesting in the crowd being like, uh, yeah, he's kind of tugging at his collar a little bit. Yeah. Oh, that $9 million. Where did that go? Oh, oh boy. Um, So yeah, Buster is just, I'm loving the way he's just stepping back stepping back and firing. The moment Tyson takes a step forward, Buster refuses to alter control of range. He just has total dominance of range. It's it's perfect boxing. It's just beautifully technical. Yeah, that you it's, step this off the over this line and I'm just gonna go bap, bap, bap at you. Like he just has him measured. He just has him perfectly measured. Your danger zone, I have 12, a 12-inch 12 advantage. If you can't change that, this is just target practice. And it's target practice with an out-of-shape guy that's not moving his feet. So I don't care if you move your head because it doesn't alter the position of you being in my danger zone. And I'm not in your danger zone. And you just don't have the energy to do anything about it. And that's so, the whole thing about moving your head is that when you move it back up, you can move it back up into a punch, which is what winds up happening several times. That's it. So so if you want to give Tyson this round because he's, he's showing that he has a great chin, that is the only way to possibly give Tyson a round in this entire fight because his chin is granite. So anybody who's ever said, like, he couldn't take a punch or whatever, Buster couldn't punch. Buster could punch. These were big shots he's taking. And Tyson has a fucking great chin. A and great a massive chin. neck massive it's like 20 21 inches like holy fuck um and you're hearing sugar ray leonard um just totally dismissive of what buster is doing he was not a good commentator he's terrible he's 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 critical of buster what buster is doing in the fight buster's got the wrong approach tyson like Tyson is setting him up in some capacity like I have no idea what fight he's watching yeah he's he's off in the clouds somewhere no, and and toward the end of this punch, Tyson does get wa- wobbled. It's the first time where you really see him shaken. I think the only other time that it ever happened was when he fought Bruno. I think Bruno wobbled him with a big shot. You kind of saw Tyson sort of tri- trip up a little bit, but the trip up was clearly cognitive. Um, his equilibrium was, was kind of attacked. And, um, you know, for Buster Douglas, who had suffered serious respiration issues, that required penicillin he does not seem concerned whatsoever about his stamina going into the sixth round he looks as relaxed as ever as i say i think he could do this for 36 rounds tyson to me i mean this is what i love about boxing and what's so hard to watch about boxing is 
it's like Marlon Brando and Tyson, I see as kind of an interesting parallel or analog. Everybody who saw Brando at the beginning was like, maybe the greatest American actor ever sort of thing. Pretty early on, he just didn't care. If you don't care as an actor, you can like, even in The Godfather, he has the script on the other actors <laughs> he's playing with. And you can just read the lines and you're Marlon Brando. You know, so it's amazing. You can't do that in boxing. When you're at the point where you don't learn your lines and you don't have the discipline to do what you need to do, this is what happens in boxing. That's the difference between this and being Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with the Lakers and you don't play defense. You don't get beaten up. You may get criticized, you know, for being lazy or whatever, but it's not what Tyson has to deal with. And I don't think people appreciate that enough that in a sport where vanity and narcissism like i think it's the most vain sport there is the other side of that is it's the most humiliating sport when you lose and that's what we're seeing with mike tyson um you know going into the sixth you're going to watch what is tyson is going to represent the most promise that boxing has ever shown of an athlete with being 20 years old and winning the heavyweight champion winning the heavyweight championship and he is also on the losing side of the biggest upset arguably in sports history that is what he encompasses you know why he's so dramatic for us but like this is hard to watch somebody uh accept the inevitability of, of what's to come because we're only in round five he's he's halfway and it's not gonna get better there's so many cliches, dude. And I mean, boxing's so easy to write about for a whole host of reasons. Um, so much just poetry and poetic type of whatever uh, to crack out from boxing that have that's already been written. But one of the real truisms and is cliche or poetic or whatever you want to call it, you can't hide when you're in the ring, dude. And who you are is who you are. And it's not even necessarily the boxing per se that does that. It's the danger. It's when you're in danger, you are who you are. You know, you, when there is an emergency, when shit's going down, you turn into who you are, period. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's exact, but that's what boxing gives you is boxing puts you in that danger. And when you're getting your ass beat, you can't hide, dude. When you're getting your ass beat out in front of you know, a ton of fucking lights, video camera, et cetera, you, you can't hide. There's nowhere to go. And that's, it's cliche as fuck, but it's really true. And we got to see it here against Mike Tyson. It's only five rounds down, dude. But, you know, he is, he's taking the beating like a man or whatever you want to, you know, the whole macho fucking shit. He's taking like a man. He's taking the beating. He's absorbing it. He's not quitting. He's not trying to resort to low blows. This is not mid-90s or early 2000s Tyson trying to fucking break Franz Botha's arm because Franz Botha is hitting him with some shit. Trying to, you know, Lou Savarese is trying to pull away from him in a clinch, so he tries to fucking kill Lou Savarese. You know, this is not that version of Tyson. He hasn't gotten there yet, but this is making that version of Tyson. This is that version in the making. That's what's happening That's here. Exactly. This is a continuum this is the beginning of that continuum. Or this is the birth the of that of birth. Yeah. Yeah. This it's is the third kinda, fight of him. Yeah. This he is kind of like the. It. He doesn't want to be here anymore. That's what it is. Yeah. He doesn't. That's what you're seeing is. Oh, I don't, it's not easy. Then I don't want this. Yeah. I don't want to be here anymore. You're and just, that's who you are. And yeah. that is who you are. And that's the thing, you know? And so we are seeing that. That's exactly what we're seeing. Larry Merchant, right before round six, says, This 
would create, no, I'll say it quicker. He says this would create a new standard of upsets if this went on, meaning if the domination by Buster Douglas went on, and it does. And that's exactly what happens. You know, even <laughs> almost 40, 40 years on, we still look at this as the standard for sports upsets. I mean, not even sports sometimes. It fucking extends beyond sports. Tyson's eye after that ass kicking in round five, swelling very, very quickly. His corner doesn't have an end swell very famously or infamously. They have a fucking latex glove that they've filled with ice water, not even just straight ice, but ice fucking water. So it's like spilling all over. It's like they can't even fucking like back, you know, like put it on his eye to, you know, do anything about this. It's like, you know, falling around his eye like a fucking balloon. And it's a total shit show in his corner, bro. And his eyes closing quickly, uh, you know. Douglas is turning away his offense constantly. Right hands from Douglas are landing. Uh, uppercuts from Tyson. You know, he starts kind of, that's one thing I will say. One adjustment Tyson started making in the mid rounds. He started going, bam, started uh, driving his uppercut home. That's really the only big adjustment he made during the course of the fight. And it wound up pay almost paying off, really paying off. But uh, it, they're still one at a time. It's not like he's putting combinations together, really. He's trying to give himself a chance but he's still having his offense stifled at pretty much every turn. This is the round that Larry Merchant says he gave Tyson. I don't see that at all. I think Buster Douglas was still dominating the round. Tyson just landed a few punches, but it's a case of those, you know, we talk about scoring before where a fighter does better in this round than he does in that round. Then you give him that round, even though he didn't win the round, he just did better. And you're kind of convinced in your mind that you've seen him get his ass kicked for six rounds in a row. All of a sudden he's not getting his ass kicked. Well, he must've won the round. That's not how it works, dude. You know, he's he was still getting bout punched, still getting whooped around a little bit. Uh, so I guess, you know, if you're really looking for a round to give Tyson fine, but I didn't. Yeah, it's another, I mean, it's recency bias in what you're describing. Like you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, there's no end swell in the in the corner. Douglas is landing at three to one ratio by this point. Um, the dominance is increasing. You know, Douglas is not just throwing shots to land, he's now putting weight behind them. He's seeing the effectiveness. He's breaking Tyson down. He's gaining confidence. In the middle of the ring, Tyson is completely ineffective. I think in this whole fight, how many times does Tyson ever corner Douglas or back him up? It doesn't really, it's the other way around. It doesn't happen. Tyson going backwards throughout his career loses. If he's not coming forward and creating angles, he loses every single opponent that had happened in his career he's not a fighter comfortable fighting on his heels because it's at every he's at every disadvantage of fighting that way as a five foot ten and a half guy with you know 70 71 inch reach you can't fight men that are this much bigger with this much more mass uh you know it just it just doesn't in any way assist him with what what he brings to the table as a fighter and Douglas, every time Tyson does take one step forward, Douglas takes a step back, he turns, and he fires. So he is creating a new angle. Tyson is left exposed because he's coming forward and he's being caught where he's most vulnerable over and over and over again, conditioning Tyson. You know what happens if you demonstrate any aggression to try to actually win this fight is it gets worse. And he's beginning to believe it by this point. You can see, I don't know what fight Larry Merchant was watching to give Tyson this round on any level. I don't know what he's watching because even the recency by, I, I just don't understand. So 
uh, yeah, going into the seventh, Tyson finally shows a sign of urgencies, mm-hmm. urgency, but it's in no way more effective. <laughs> so Tyson starts countering a little bit, but he's still lunging in a, an entirely predictable way. Buster is just um, jabbing and stepping like Buster's taking what is offered. He's not desperate in any way. He's very comfortable with where, where the flow of the fight. Um, Tyson is trying to make things happen, but in doing so and with the desperation in not being in condition, I mean, and also just, I think what some people don't understand is they're like, how much did they train before the fight? Yeah, it's important, but really the whole year before that period is also massively important. Tyson at this time, as we mentioned, is routinely blowing up in weight going on crash diets. He is drinking a lot. He is drugging a lot. He, uh, when he beat Trevor Burbick, he was suffering. I think it, not, it was like a major STD. I forget which one, gonorrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is really not respecting his body. I don't think in any way he felt like he deserved to be in the position he was in. So there's a lot of self-sabotage. Now, you know, like, it doesn't mean I, I'm not sympathetic to the stresses that he was dealing with, but it can make you appreciate other champions. Floyd had a ton of drama in his life. Ali had a ton of drama in his life. Tyson was just more vulnerable in this way. And I think more sensitive as a person, which is why he projects the opposite, I think. But, um, you know, Tyson is just really, really struggling as Buster is just coming into his own. It's like, I think Buster is even stronger in the seventh round than he's been leading up to it. And um, and just his spirit is just getting stronger and stronger. I don't know what he's channeling. He breaks down in tears at the end of the fight, talking about how much his mother meant to him. Maybe that's all he was thinking about. But I don't Which know. Which is the talking. dumbest interview, by the way. Larry Merchant oh, is like, Larry Merchant's like, can, can you elaborate on that? And he's like, what? <laughs> Every the people yeah. around him are going, he just fucking told you. <laughs> yeah, he just told you. <laughs> what the fuck no. is Larry doing? Merchant, Merchant's a fucking idiot. <laughs> this point. But um, but Douglas, Douglas is just so strong at this point. And you know, it's it's just I just don't even understand. Like, we're gonna get to the end where the judges are watching the fight we're talking about. And I mean, just the metrics we're offering in terms of punch count and stuff where in the end, one of these judges is going to give Tyson the lead. 87-86, Tyson. 86-86, or where we were at at this point. 87-86, Tyson, by one of the judges. 86-86, Douglas. I mean, mean, like, so it's a draw. And then another season, 88-83, Douglas. Meaning, like, two rounds up to that point, Tyson had won. It's some of the worst judging I've ever heard of. I, I have no idea what they're watching going it's into the eighth round. Not good. Not good. Yeah. It, I didn't, like I said, if you're really looking for a round to give Tyson, fine. Like, you know, give him one or something like that. I don't agree, but I, whatever. I, you know, the judges are human, but not fucking have Tyson out in the lead human. That's fucking, that's a little ridiculous. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's seven zip Buster Douglas. You know, this is obviously where things start to get more interesting and where the psychotic fucking fans are going to start. If, if they do descend upon us, they'll descend about this. No question. Uh, but so, you know, throughout the fight, 
Buster Douglas, longer, straighter shots, one twos, one two threes, three twos, those type of uh, basic combinations that are real textbook type of stuff. Not really opening up with anything super crazy. Every so often throwing an uppercut. Uh, but you know, Tyson's throwing his first combination in his wa- in a while in round eight. Uh, but that being said, he, uh, he's still not really able to bridge the gap. Douglas is standing his ground. He's making sure he knows, no, you know, like this is my type of fight still. And he actually does really well in round eight. It's just that he starts to hurt Tyson towards the end again. He gets him rocked. He thinks that he can kind of like uh, get a little bit comfortable. I think, you know, he gets a little bit careless. And just toward the end of the round, I have to give Tyson credit for setting the shot up, at least somewhat. I don't think he was thinking about it, per se, but he threw the right shot at the right time and from the right uh, position where his back was from the ropes. And it's not a situation where we would see Tyson really, you know, with his back on the ropes and having to fucking fire a real big shot. But he did. Fired it. Landed it. Buster Douglas ate it. And it looked for a second like, oh, there's Mike Tyson, you know, he showed up, but you know, he's still got a very swollen eye, but Buster Douglas hits the deck and it's, you could see in his face though. He was more just pissed off that he hit the deck than hurt. And that's when, like you kind of said earlier, who knows what Mike Tyson was thinking at that point, kind of like when Deontay Wilder knocked down Tyson Fury, huge and Tyson Fury's like fucking his head gets fucking, ah! and then, you know, you look over and he's just like pops up <laughs> and then you can see Deontay Wilder from the corner go, like, look at him like, are you fucking kidding me? I can't imagine what Mike Tyson was thinking at that moment. Like, I finally landed my Sunday punch. I landed that shot. And this guy is just sitting here pounding the canvas like he wants to get back up. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, I, it's one thing with Tyson Fury. Clearly, there are issues in getting in condition for fights. You know, the weight is all over the place. You know, I'm not I'm not just fat shaming him for, for the weight. I mean, clearly, his body is not like the chiseled kind of thing. But in terms of when he's in the ring, the mental toughness with Fury, he's just such a competitor. He has so much confidence in his ability to come back from anything or to be up against anything. I'll solve it. I'll figure it out in the way that Ali was like. And I don't make that comparison casually. I think that's extraordinary. Tyson is not that. Tyson confronted by adversity, by somebody that has more willpower than him, does not do well. He does, I think, have the the kind of bully mentality that if you confront it, you don't buy into my bluster and my image. I don't know what else to to kind of do. Like you're supposed to. I'm the guy dressed in black and I wear a towel and everybody's saying that this is so masculine. And, blah, blah. and it's like if you don't buy into it, it's it's what's so interesting about boxing is when you lose, everything about it looks kind of silly. Suddenly <laughs> you're like oh, this uniform doesn't look like the uniform of invincibility. It looks like kind of a silly, childish, you know. Two shirtless people just fighting over some shit. Yeah, and you know, you have your little USA little little thing on your shorts and there's this other one. I don't really know what it is. I don't know why you have it, but like it was really cool five seconds ago and now it kind of, you know, like what are you, it's like all these tattoos you have. Oh, there's Arthur Ashe over there and Mao's over there, Chase on your stomach. What are all these things? Because you have no fucking idea who you are. All you all you are is this kind of motley crew assembly of stuff that's supposed to speak for you. But like fundamentally, who are you? Who who likes you for who you are? In your own mind, nobody. Nobody's ever liked you. 
And, and now you're the most famous person in the world. How many girls liked you before you were a great boxer who could make millions of dollars? Nobody wanted to sleep with you. And now you can sleep with anybody. How well is that going to go for anybody who has that kind of personality complex? You know, that degree of insecurity that's reinforced. So, so yeah, I mean, Tyson in this one, in the eighth round, he comes out finally ready to win. I don't know what he did in the corner. But you do see him come out and there's a there's that aggression of wanting to assert he's not just surviving. He's not just desperate. Suddenly it's like, fuck, I need to put this together. I, I did. Maybe on some level, I did deserve to be heavyweight champion of the world. And I need to fucking show it. I need to come back and reassert myself. And who the hell is this guy? I've, I've knocked out people that have beaten him. I, I can't buy into this. So suddenly there's there's this willpower that we haven't seen the entire fight. And for a little bit, as you mentioned, he starts relying more on the uppercut. They start landing. They start having some impact on Buster. He's gaining some confidence. Suddenly, he's slipping and stepping. He's creating some angles. We're seeing that guy he used to be. But that guy is not in shape to, to fight that way. So I think that must also be inside of, I, I can't fight that way for half a round or a third of a round. I can just give a glimpse of who I was, even though I'm 23 years old. It's pretty weird to say this is a guy way over the hill at 23, when most guys are not even started like, like near championship level. Tyson is already. And so it, it's, it's just crazy because once he starts swinging wide with these sweeping shots, um, Buster asserts back like he's angrier as a result which I think is really tough if you have a bully mentality in the ring. When, when you attack, it not only does not intimidate, but it inspires them to go, how dare you try to attack me? And you come back even harder, which is exactly what Buster does. Buster just fucking lays a smackdown in a way that we haven't seen. So I think what Tyson internalizes, pop psychology, I apologize, is if I really pour it on, it's going to hurt even more. Oh my God, this guy, like this guy doesn't have a weakness and Buster is just pouring it on toward the end of the round. Tyson starts to fade. The pressure is getting to him. Buster corners him against the ropes. And then there is this moment out of nowhere of, of Tyson landing this tremendous uppercut. The idea where the commentators say that he's been set waiting for this, waiting for this opportunity. He sees the opportunity. He's been planning for this all the he time. He specifically got his ass beat for seven yeah. and a half rounds so he could land an uppercut. Yeah. W was he being coy to get his ass kicked against the ropes so that he could then storm forward with two steps and land the uppercut? Um, probably not. You know, so, you know, he took the shot, you know, stepped into it. You have to actually believe something could happen if you do it so good for him the idea that this was part of the grand plan i think we're in foreman more territory that the whole plan was to lose almost every round in order to land the right hand sure you know but if you you know if you do it you get to say it and the other guys can... yeah i mean you can't exactly argue i guess but no. still i don't think that's what happened but i think the coup de gras in this fight is is not just buster getting up but it's by what second three the pounding pounding of the canvas you gotta know tyson wherever he was after knocking him down the relief the relief i think is the key phrase because he does not want to be there that night in tokyo but to see buster banging it on the canvas says he really wants to be here that hasn't done anything 
to break down his spirit. That hasn't done anything. He doesn't, he won't believe in me. Why won't he believe in this thing I've created? So, you know, regardless of the long count and all that, I don't think it was a long count. I mean, yes, I think objectively it was 14 seconds because it was objectively 14 seconds, but that's not the rules. Just like when Tyson gets up at the end and it's 14 seconds, it's identical. It's it's what the ref is counting. I counted 12 seconds when I count it, but like they're human beings measuring this stuff. If, you know, like, yeah. I, I'm not against that because I don't think like how often is there great controversy with this kind of thing? And there's only controversy because you're biased toward Tyson, you well, know, which I am too. And we'll talk about this for the end too. Like I will come back to the whole knockdown thing, but you know, I don't know, dude, you can't, you can't really say, I, I obviously can't argue. Yeah, sure. Fine. You planned it. Great. But, um, as far as the actual length of the knockdown, yeah, you you're 100%, dude. It's not the rule is not 14 seconds, 10 seconds, 9 seconds, whatever. And they have a timekeeper as a guide. Yes. And also in some jurisdictions, depending on where you are, you'll hear the thunk, thunk, thunk. You know, some some places yeah. do that. Not all, but some places do that. Sure, great. However, they're not they're not going by the timekeeper. This is not fucking, you know, Ollie Liston too with Nat Fleischer. Well, you know, exactly that never happens. And the the reason why we remember that is because it's an outlier. It never fucking happens. They're not going by the timekeepers fucking bang, bang, bang. They're going by what the referee says. The referee's using the timekeeper as a guide and it's the toll of 10. That's it. It's not, you know, it's not really that complicated. So I think a lot of it is people, it's kind of like they're using that, like it's the hall of fame not the hall of greatness. And he was famous. You know, it's like fine fucking, you know, Mr. Fucking literal. All right. I get you. Yeah. <laughs> like I understand the argument, but I think that they're taking the, it's misguided. It's miss. It's not in the correct, you know, the heart's not in the right fucking place here. And Buster might've gotten up. Buster might've gotten up earlier. Had the count been a different. Yeah, number. That's not his fault. No. Like, I mean, we, he's only subject to the referee's oversight. Yeah. That, that's all he has it, to go by. It's the same as people like assailing even to this day, Gene Tunney against Jack Dempsey, like Dempsey knocked him out. And it's like, well, they agreed before the fight to get your ass to the neutral corner. Dempsey didn't. So the count got delayed case fucking closed. And on yeah. top of that thing, nobody ever brings up about that fight. hundred fucking years later is that Dempsey knocked his ass or I'm sorry, Tunney knocked Dempsey down in the following round, like put yeah. him right on his ass. So anyway, yeah. But it's the same kind of situation where the law, the thing's not applied the same way. You know, like it's, you're mad because Tyson got knocked out. So you got to use that as an excuse. I understand. But that was, it was a generous count, I guess. But that shit was not a long count. It wasn't like an awful count. And that's yeah, the kind the of, fuck up. Shut the that's fuck what up. that argument hinges on. And I'm just not buying it. No, and, and he is losing the entire fight. Like, if you and really... Even seasoned... Mike said it a couple times. On, like, his show, he's brought it up and been like, yeah, it was a long count. Come on, dude. No, and, and, you know, and I think all of these guys, to get to this place, like, one of the things Tyson said to me is, with everybody at a certain level of achievement, in any arena of ambition, you know what they all have in common is they all feel fucking worthless. Why do they feel worth it? Like, why, why is that the case? Because who would aspire to that? Who is content with who they are and what they've done? You just wouldn't strive. So because of that, I think there's a kind of patho pathological 
like defensiveness about what you've done or who you are. So you're going to, no matter what, like everybody who takes steroids justifies it with moral relativity. Well, everybody was cheating. So it's the same thing. So ultimately, whoever wins ultimately really wins because everybody was cheating. Uh, no, Lance Armstrong cheating is the most like concerted, organized effort to cheat of anybody yep. in history. That's not the same as another guy who has no money, it's doesn't like have to, you know, yeah, like if, if you have a ton of money, then you start out on fucking third base rather than at home plate. It's the same fucking, you know, yeah. idea. Yeah. If you're, you know, OJ Simpson, when he was asked if you didn't have money, how would he have done in the murder case? He said, I would have lost by a mile. Anybody would lose. It's only because I have money and celebrity that I could win. What are you talking about? It's not equal. So with with Tyson, I just think like there's always going to he's always going to seize upon who he was with Spinks and disregard everything else and say, that's not the real me. This is the real me. And, you you know, just like Buster does the same thing, too. Right. Buster seizes on what happened with Tyson and pretends like that's the real Buster. That was the real Buster for one night. We never saw that guy before. We never saw him afterwards. And forever he can just tell us and try to gaslight us, that was the real me all along. It wasn't. You know, that's why I think we need to appreciate guys like Floyd, guys guys who have a long career, because that is so difficult to do, to, to put yourself in that position, to do that with all the adversity they face and the challenges, is even if it's not as exciting as some of these other guys or as dramatic, it's way fucking harder. Exactly. Just, that's, that's part of what makes it harder. That's get, right. To get your ass up with the mundane bullshit and go to that nine to five every single day, do the same fucking thing, never change, but you stick with it because you know the reward at the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's why it's harder. That's it. But it's less exciting. It's less traumatic. You know, like F. Scott Fitzgerald saying there are no second acts in American life. That's why there's something in, intrinsically romantic about this. Rise up. How many fucking famous American lives rise up and flame out and we enjoy both. And occasionally there's a, there is a comeback, you know, as there was with Tyson, but we, we love tearing these people down as much as we love them getting up to the top. And, and it's extraordinarily stressful how much pressure there is up there, but then they just have this endless fucking rationalization, but what the real version is of who they are or their legacy. And Tyson is totally fine saying, no, no legacy without longevity is really important. And then he'll contradict it the next second about saying like sort of how high I got and how good I was for a limited period of time. That guy could beat anybody as if that legacy is more important than other people that have 10, 15 years of being at the highest level. It's bullshit. And it's self-serving. So, you know, I... I, I struggle with this element of Tyson's personality way more now than I used to when I was just blindly supportive of him. But, you know, Tyson, I mean, getting back to the fight, Ty, Tyson, ninth round, you've oh, got the I'm, Real quick, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. eighth round, how did how do we score that then? How do we score round eight? I don't even know how to get into that. How do you score it? Because Buster, Buster, I think, had 95% of the round was dominated. And hurt him twice. And hurt him. And hurt him. So... Easily a 10-9 round for Buster before the knockdown. Easily nine, you know, 10-9. I wouldn't, I don't know how you could argue it would be a 10-8 round for Buster, but easily 10-9. Then Tyson scores it. It's a 10-round must. So 
where are we with it? I guess 10-9 Tyson. I mean, I, I guess. guess. I, and and if you're if you're saying, ah, well, you got to take a point for the knockdown, you make it 10-8 Tyson, sure. I mean, I'm not going to argue too much, but it's a weird scenario. Yeah, you, you don't really see too often where a guy is like kind of getting his ass kicked, but then scores a knockdown at the end of the round. It's a I weird one. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. Sorry, head on to round nine, but I had to ask. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. It, it's it's a weird one because I didn't I didn't really remember. I knew the knockdown happened in the, at the end of the round, but I didn't remember how not completely dominating the round. Like it was kind of Tyson's best round in the sense that he did something, but he really did something for about 10 or 15 seconds. And then he has the knockdown at the end, but otherwise Buster is dominating as much as he has the entire fight. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clearly a 10-9 Buster round. If we're just saying... Who would you rather be? The amount of dominance. Certainly, if we go to punch stats, it's overwhelmingly Buster. I don't know where you come from giving Tyson it, but uh, ninth round, I think Tyson recognizes the only chance I really have here. I know how far behind I must be is to come in really fast. Douglas smartly clinches. Tyson lands a few shots where you go, where's this going? And um, Douglas, as he's done throughout the fight, shows that he wants it more and lands even harder shots in response. And you can just see Tyson is sort of expecting, yeah, something could happen, but I just don't have any real faith in it anymore. He gets really desperate. The condition disparity between the two now is becoming glaring. Uh, Tyson's eye is closing. So he's basically a Cyclops out there and Douglas starts landing a combo that wobbles Tyson and um, yeah, Douglas, Douglas just pouring it on toward the end of the round. There's a moment that stands out for me too, rewatching it where Douglas spits and then just comes right in with the combination, but the way he just kind of spits off to the side, it's so workmanlike. It's so just apart from I'm setting myself up to make $23 million and, and shock the world. It's like in the meantime, this is kind of fun just to kick this guy's fucking ass. For a second there, he thought he was going to come back in this round. And then off he goes and just lays into Tyson. And, you know, it's, it's, Tyson is a heavy bag in this entire fight for Buster Douglas. I think Buster Douglas probably had a harder time with a heavy bag in preparation for this fight, like at the beginning of him training, than actually Tyson was in this fight. 8-1 easily for Douglas like pretty clearly like you said he wobbled him toward the end of the round and then he rocked him again and then Tyson goes at the end of the ninth round kind of walking to his corner like hurt tired doesn't look good like it it's not it, it the brief success the success was brief it did it was as soon as they even said it, uh, opening up the nine round, ninth round, I think it was Larry Merchant, he says something to the effect of, Mike Tyson is trying to test to see if, if Buster Douglas is still hurt. Finds out real quickly, nah, he's fine. He starts, <laughs> you know, he gets on his, he gets on his fucking uh, bike, starts jabbing, and pretty quickly the air comes out of fucking Mike Tyson's, you know, balloon real quick. And... Uh, hurts him and then goes to his corner. Tyson's walking to his corner, kind of real slowly tired, hurt, doesn't look good. And so obviously it's easy to see this now and know, all right, well, here's the real beginning of the end of the fight. 
that was damn near a 10-8 round toward the end from Douglas in round nine. Like, he was really putting a whooping on him, showing him that, like, nah, dude, you might have taken that round, but I'm taking it right back. So, I mean, we're looking through nine rounds, 8-1 for sure. And then going into the 10th round, uh, you know, it really, again, we have the serious benefit of fucking hindsight here. So we can set this whole narrative up as far as how the fight's going and what Buster's thinking and et cetera. But you could really see just the body language, Tyson versus Douglas here is that Buster Douglas is coming into this round thinking, okay, like I'm sitting down on everything here. I'm going to really start whooping on this guy. And that's exactly what happens. Like he jabs, jabs his face in to start the round, like really jabbing. Tyson slow on his feet, looking for one punch. Douglas keeping him on the end of his jab. He just really looks in command. Uh, Tyson's cautious. He was looking in the last round like he wanted to do something. Now not so much. And then all of a sudden, you described it earlier. Just jabs, jabs, jabs. Keeps his distance. It's like really textbook boxing shit. You know, moving your rear foot back and just sliding it as you're jabbing because the dude's fucking coming towards you and then right as tyson lowers his head bank yeah. uppercut just an uppercut from hell dude uh you know the fact that tyson took that uppercut really i mean he was obviously hurt but he took it it kind of rocked him back but you know buster had to still come forward and land a few more shots to really put him down again a testament to mike tyson's chin throughout this fight because he really took a number of big big shots from buster douglas again not a puncher but he through everything in some of those shots Tyson was taking them but that was a really beautiful combination you know he throws that right uppercut and then he if you kind of zoom, uh, zoom out on that slow motion replay he shifts himself because he throws the right uppercut and puts himself out of position then has to throw an overhand left from southpaw position which is just beautiful you know it's it, he puts him down had Tyson had the presence of mind not to fumble for his mouthpiece maybe maybe would have made it up and then Octavio Meiran, the referee who was also the the referee in the famous No Moss fight, by the way, uh, with had some you know those fights had some of the craziest scoring on the face of the planet. Nonetheless, uh, one thing I I was saying I was going to mention this in a moment. The one thing that I don't really like about what he did at the end of the fight, I'm not a huge fan of when referees go eight, nine. You know, yeah. like you can't even say 10. You know, I know it's a, it's a formality. It's a technicality. Cause like you're getting to 10, whether you wave it at 10 or not, he's not up at 10, but nonetheless, it's just a little bit of a kind of like what anyway, beautiful stuff for Buster at the end to end the fight. Yeah. And the weird thing about the beginning of the 10th round is Tyson opens it up with one of the, like a right hand from two years ago. It, it's so quick. You see that cat-like quickness at the beginning, and he lands it, and Douglas just starts dancing, just starts dancing right away. Like nothing phases him in this fight. It's there's, it's it's really remarkable because where did this confidence come from for a kid that his entire life it's just never there. It's never really there after this fight ever again. But whatever it is, like, it's not just a lucky punch in a fight that he was otherwise losing or something like that. He he didn't just knock Tyson out. He destroyed Tyson in this fight. He dominated throughout, I think, I think everything but maybe 15 seconds of the fight, he dominated. 
And and the culmination of that is is you know the way he sets up this knockout. Even there, he's just so patient. It's like eight steps to find it. He's 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 kind of in orbit of Tyson a little bit. He's like a satellite. He kind of steps back. He kind of moves off. There's eight steps. I've got him in profile. Boom! It comes. And even that, he's not excited by it. It's not desperate. He's just allowing allowing something to to present itself that opportunity before he seizes it and once it's there he's he's just composed you can see him almost breathe into it there it is now i'm ready to do what i've been waiting to do the entire time i've been i knew this was coming but this was the inevitability that i could see before anybody else could and that has a very chess feeling for me like when i've covered like the chess world championships the one thing that i think like a Magnus Carlsen gets to have is he sees that beautiful checkmate before the entire world can see it. And in this Buster Douglas sees one of the most iconic knockouts ever. One of the most iconic endings of, of any sporting event ever. He sees it in his mind before it happens. Cause you're right. Even when he's out of position, it's like, he doesn't think it's just, he's just in the flow. And, and the knockout is just so, so beautiful and it's so unthinkable that, I mean, I feel ridiculous comparing it to a Pearl Harbor or 9-11, but how many times do we still watch those towers come down and still just can't accept that it happened? That was the feeling of this being shown again and again and again and again, because it wasn't enough to convince us. How did you bring this guy down? How did this guy do this was in sports equivalency that for for the world it it was just really bizarre and heady and totally surreal and um you know the sustained accuracy of douglas throughout this fight is just what tyson had no ability to disrupt to cope with to deal with there was no alternate game plan to kind of mitigate it it was just oh i understand like what happened in the 10th round was what you wanted to have happen. Whatever I've done in my career to get me where I am, I don't have any answer to this question. And, and then there it is. And like a great magic trick, it is completely logical and completely surreal simultaneously. You look at it and it's impossible to accept. And yet it makes complete sense that it didn't one second before it happened. One second before it happened, it's completely inexplicable. It's unimaginable. And then poof, it happens. And it's totally the logical result. And, and that that's still how it stays with me is I was alive, as were you, at a time where this could not happen. And then you could never go back to that version ever again. You know, it's it's not the murder of John Lennon or the murder of a celebrity or a suicide or something like that. But it's sports as a metaphor for those kind of things, which is why I think it's easier for us to cope with it in sports language than we can in other real things. Losing a family member, you know, a, a heart attack of a parent or whatever. It's that version that sports offers us, which is like one little step removed kind of thing. So, so it's just interesting that we have one of the biggest personalities in the history of sports losing in 
one of the most dramatic ways that sports has ever offered the world. <laughs> and and there's Buster as the most boring interview ever, forever after trying to explain it for us. It's just it's just better just to watch it. Yeah, I mean, Larry Merchant follows up a great line. This makes Cinderella look like a sad story. Yeah, fantastic yeah. line with just an awful interview. Lampley is doing <laughs> his best to like tonight. This evening, you know, like, and people are like, yeah, he, he loves it. It's terrible. But then Merchant goes in there. He's trying to fucking interview Buster Douglas. And Buster Douglas, like, in tears. He could barely talk. You know, he's he's winded. He's, like, he's doing this during the interview. He's, like, jogging during the interview with Chick because he's so, like, amped up from, you know, I can't even imagine the adrenaline that's surging through his body. But then he's, like, you know, coming to this realization that's just sweeping over him during the interview. My mom's died, dead. This is my inspiration. And Larry Merson's like, what do you mean? How did this inspire? It's like, shut the fuck up, dude. What is wrong with you? You know, like, let the moment happen or let him have it or, you know, but don't press on this. What? So weird, dude. Fucking Barbara Walters ass. And so it was very strange. But then uh, the fact that, you know, you I think you brought it up earlier. They did this whole in-studio segment. I think it was the following day or two days later um, where they bring them into the HBO studios and they got fucking merch there and they're going over the fight and stuff like that. Tyson's got the glasses on and shit. You know, it's it was actually really, really interesting. And there's a whole long segment on it too. But um, yeah, very surreal. I mean, there's nothing like it. There's no... This is this is what's so interesting about him is the highs are higher than anybody and the lows are lower than anybody. That's Tyson. I think I think you're getting if you reduce any celebrity to a drug that gets us addicted, this is why we're addicted to him. Because it's not just what he did, but it's the personality that also has never lost its relevance. In in since we first learned about it, we were hooked. It was a gateway drug at 18 years old, totally hooked. And as the as the hero, as the villain, he's more marketable as a convicted rapist than he was as this conservative corporate America, white corporate America advertising guy who should have been the first billionaire in sports. Either version is just as compelling. And what we don't do is give him credit as a self-marketing person to create that effect. And we should, because if he was in marketing for somebody else doing this, <laughs> we'd say he is, P.T. Barnum is a fucking moron. No shit. But instead we go, oh no, it's just, he's so, he's so animalistic and, and it's all these other he's things. curiosity. You know. Yeah, no, Mike Tyson, I'll, I'll tell a quick story, which is just that when I asked him whether or not he'd been sexually molested, which I suspected, uh, reading about his childhood and stuff like that, he he had a really weird moment when he was looking at me where I thought, oh, I might get knocked out by Mike Tyson. I might be his last knockout victim. But instead he admitted it. And as I was typing it up that night to put into what I was writing about him, the next morning he volunteered that information on a radio show. Wasn't asked, but he recognized that that would make headlines around the world. And it was a new way to look at the story of Mike Tyson. Well, and, and it's also, uh, you know, if you, if you kind of buy that psychology that he's insecure, it's an insecure person's way of controlling the narrative. 
And, and it's a very clever way to remarket himself because suddenly it's a sympathetic angle through which to view all of his menace that a sexual predator, what it suggested was whatever you think Mike Tyson has done, perhaps you think more has been done to him. And that's another element of Mike Tyson is as much as he embodied the role, the character of a world-class victimizer, he also occupies the role of a world-class victim. When you hear that voice, when you hear what he was, he could never stand up to anybody in such a scary neighborhood. He's bullied mercilessly, homophobically. The mother is an alcoholic, you know, prostitute and all that. You know, Tyson Tyson grew up in a way that would destroy any of us. Any, any well-balanced person going through a, 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 a thousandth of what he went through would destroy lives. And yet he was able to attain what he did. You know, as they say in boxing, it's like the only area where like having a massive criminal record is a good CV to become a heavyweight champion. There's not a lot of other areas where that's true, but Tyson is that complicated. And yet in other areas, he's so simple. He's such pure signal. Like he, there's just nobody like him as a character, you know, and he really was that good as an athlete. He, he was somebody that when people saw him at 12 years old, without hyperbole compared, this must have been what it would be like to meet Mozart at six. This must have been what it was like to meet a Michelangelo at boxing. He was that good at it. And then he gives the drama of the Buster Douglas, the Desiree Washington. Again, it's, it's more myth than it is tabloid story, but it's also a great tabloid story. You know, like it's, you know, OJ Simpson gives us the most media attention of any event in human history. This fucking football player, like, you know, 2,000 yard season and and never won a Super Bowl or anything. But like some guys just capture our imagination this way. And I think Tyson, I think people will be talking about Mike Tyson a lot longer than they'll be talking about Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was a hell of a lot better athlete in terms of the career he put together, but way less captivating. Who would like, like, I remember Jeremy Schaft did an E60 about Tyson and said, even years after his retirement, you go where there's every major celebrity, there's no no room with celebrities you could put into it where when Tyson walks in, he doesn't own the room. That's the weird thing about this guy. And I'm not defending it. I'm not celebrating it. It's just kind of undeniable. And I don't fucking get it. It's, it's crazy, but it's yeah. totally not deniable. Yeah, like I it would probably take too long for me to get into like the morals or ethics of how I feel about his comeback and all that type of stuff. But, you know, it's undeniable that he's done it. It's undeniable that he had the, um, you know, the popularity, the, the, you know, the ability to do it. So, you know, it's, it's massive that that's just how popular he's been throughout the decades. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, what's really crazy. Um, and he remains pretty popular too, even now, like he still owns a room even now. Well, long, long time passes, but like it's almost fucking 40 years ago. We're talking about here, you know? So yeah. it's amazing. Um, but again, it was really fun to go back and watch this fight too. Uh, there really wasn't nearly as much drama going back, obviously and rewatching it. And there wasn't much drama in terms of it being competitive, but nonetheless, uh, just dissecting these kinds of massive moments in history is interesting stuff. Well, the, the ultimate drama is with us. 
That's the that's the crazy thing about this fight is that there's a lot of drama in this fight. It's incredibly dramatic. It's one of the most iconic dramatic events in sports history. There's more drama with our emotional baggage that we bring into it. That's that's the surprise. Yeah. You go, oh, my God, I had no idea what I was contributing to this event or what the culture was contributing to this event. But that's the crazy fucking thing with Mike Tyson is his all all of what we're talking about with him it's just as much about us and our relationship to him, but but we don't really want that accountability and we don't really like what it says about us. That's he asks a lot exactly. of questions of us. Exactly. And, and sort of I remember my dad as a little kid saying, You have a, a forensic psychologist studying serial killers and that kind of thing. The serial killer didn't choose to be that way. This guy elected to obsess over the exact same shit and we venerate them. And then we say, oh my God, it's unimaginable the horror of what this person is doing. But the person who's obsessed with it, we love hearing from them. And Tyson has that kind of dynamic. Send it to boxing fans or or this situation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So uh, that's one of the reasons why like, I've always been obsessed with how he views us because he must just be like, God, these guys are so easy to manipulate. How did I become so interesting to these people? And, and he seems kind of in shock about it at times. No, it, it no, for sure. And he's been able to kind of um, cash in on that in the most in recent years. And in a way, can't blame him. You know what I mean? Because it usually the script is flipped in boxing. So uh, at least, you know, for a change, you see the fighter coming out on top, or at least relatively speaking, for now. So uh, that's pretty interesting, though. But hey, this is kind of at least officially where the downfall started. We can point toward the Spinks fight for sure, and I think that you're, you know, a large part correct about that. But this, at least officially, on paper, this is where the downfall began. You know, we've seen the the reworking, but it's a pretty big fall. And it's 15 years of free fall after this. 15 years where he convinced us over and over, I'm even better after coming out of jail. Don't don't believe your eyes about how I looked against Peter McNeely or Buster Mathis Jr. or Frank Bruno the second time, that I can't really fight legitimate opponents anymore. Uh, I'm way better than I ever was. And critics, a lot of them went along with it. Like the emperors with new clothes thing, he maintained it for 15 years. As we say, he was about to sign a massive contract if he got through Kevin McBride. Have a look at Kevin McBride's box wreck at the t- in 2005. Like they couldn't find an opponent bad enough for him to reliably beat. He was so disinterested and fucked up and drug addicted and alcoholic and on and on and on. And still we were willing to pay him when he was that far beyond his relevance as a legitimate great fighter. And that is just not true of Muhammad Ali or a lot of other guys, like not remotely close were they marketable athletically when they were so far past their prime. And again, he was only 23 years old when this happened. Like it's just fucking crazy. Even after the prison thing, he was what, 28, 29 when he got out. It's crazy. But we'll have to think about what other fights we do this with. But, dude, I appreciate you taking the time for this, man, because, you know, it's always nice reliving history. It is. But what the hell measures up to this one? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to. Well, I did put out some feelers on uh, on X, 
com the other day. So we'll we'll see what, what what kind of results we get as far as what people would like to see. But nonetheless, dude, there's options. There's options. We'll figure some shit out. All right. Well, I got to feed these boys or else Raul and Henry are going to create the drama for us for the next one. Well, I appreciate you, man. Everybody who listened in, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Go ahead and subscribe via the regular podcast apps. If you watched on YouTube, subscribe there as well. Leave us a comment. Try to comment back if we don't feel weird about it, which is pretty much never. But nonetheless, if you are on social media, go ahead and find us on social media. The the old, uh, you know, uh, social media platform that used to be known as Twitter. My buddy Bryn Jonathan Butler is there as Brynicio, B-R-I-N-I-C-I-O. I'm there as Boxing History, not on there personally anymore, but the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is also on Facebook, Instagram. Go check those out. Bryn, we'll talk soon, bro. Bobby Chez, there's our answer. Blame Bobby, everybody. Blame Bobby. See you later.